Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good morning, everyone. Getting closer and closer to Thanksgiving Day. It is Tuesday, November 22nd. We're so glad that you could join us. And we're going to start out by telling you we have these new details about the suspected gunman and the five victims that he killed at an LGBTQ nightclub in Colorado Springs. The charges he is facing this morning. Also, medicine shortage across the country as RSV infections and the flu both surge at the same time. Patients are now reporting problems getting the drugs they need. Also this. Iran's soccer team, silent during the national anthem at the World Cup. We'll have more on the acts of defiance that we are seeing happening in Qatar. We'll take you there live to give you an update on the ground. It is a busy Tuesday here, but first we're going to start with the Hero Army veteran who tackled the gunman inside that nightclub. He says that he thought that he was... He was done with war until it came back to him right here on U.S. soil. His name is Richard Fierro. He used his military training to take down the shooter and save lives. A drag performer used her heels to help him. You're going to hear from Richard live in this program in just a short time away. Also this morning, we're learning the names of the five souls taken too soon and who they were from the people who loved them. Rosa Flores, live for CNN this morning in Colorado Springs. Rosa, good morning to you. What are the new details you're learning? Good morning, Don. I want to share with you the names of the five victims. This all according to police. The names are Raymond Green Vance. According to his family, he's described as being kind and gifted and willing to go out of his way for anyone. Kelly Loving, her sister Tiffany, says that her sister was just a good person, loving, caring and sweet. Ashley Paw, her husband, saying that her that his wife just had a huge heart and that she worked at a nonprofit that helps foster children find homes. Daniel Aston, uh, his family saying that he moved to Colorado Springs to be closer to his family. And Derek Rump. I talked to a survivor, Ed Sanders, who says that Derek would give him a ride home when he couldn't get an Uber just to make sure that he got home safe. And we're also learning the names of the heroes who authorities say saved countless lives. Everybody in that building experienced combat that night, not to their own accord, but because they were forced to. Former Army Major Richard Fierro served four tours in combat zones overseas. He tackled the gunman and with the help of another young man and a drag performer was able to disarm and disable the shooter. I just started wailing away. Uh, with his gun. Um, And then I told the kid in front of me, kick him, keep kicking him. I was doing what I did, I do downrange, you know, I train, I train for this. I don't want to ever do this. This kid that was helping me was kicking another human in the head and I told him to do it. I don't, I don't know what to do. You know, I, I, there, there was a a, a beautiful, one of the, uh, the performers was walking by when the kid was getting tired of kicking and she, 
Fierro was at the club with friends, his wife, his daughter, and daughter's boyfriend, Raymond Vance, who was killed that night. I lost my kid's boyfriend. I tried. I tried to have everybody in there. I still feel bad that there's five people. There's five people that didn't go home. And this, this guy, I told him while I was eating him, I said, I'm going to kill you, man, because you tried to kill my friends. My family was in there. Survivor Barrett Hudson tells CNN he sustained seven gunshot wounds during the shooting. I got shot. I knew I got shot a few times. I fell down. He proceeded to shoot me. I got back up. I made it out of the back of the club. I've been shot seven times at this, or seven times by now. I got really, really lucky. And I, I don't know why I'm still here. CNN has obtained a Facebook live stream that appears to show a standoff with police during his June 2021 arrest. You see that right there? Heads got their rifles out. He was arrested for felony menacing and first degree kidnapping, according to a news release at the time, after his mother says he threatened her with a homemade bomb and other weapons. According to the district attorney, the suspect has not been formally charged, but he is being held without bond pending multiple possible charges. Now, those possible charges include possibly five counts of first degree murder and five counts of the hate crime statute here in Colorado. Now, the suspect is still in the hospital and authorities are tight lipped about his condition. Don Rosa Flores joining us from Colorado Springs. Thank you, Rosa. All right, in Colorado, hate crimes are referred to as bias-motivated crimes. They're defined as the intent to intimidate or harass another person in whole or in part because of that person's actual or perceived race, color, religion, ancestry, national origin, physical or mental disability, or their sexual orientation. Before 2021, Colorado had prosecutors. Prosecutors had to prove that a defendant's acts had been motivated solely by hate, but now the law requires them to establish only that bias was a factor in the case, not the sole motivation. For perspective on this, let's bring in criminal defense attorney and former federal prosecutor Katie Truskaski. She has prosecuted hate crime cases, so you are the perfect guest to talk to us about this because that's been a big part of this conversation is what if this is going to be potentially an avenue for them to go down. And I know, you know, two things that stick out. One, that this is obviously a club that caters to the LGBTQ community. There are only two of them in Colorado Springs, we were told yesterday by some of the guests. And, of course, it, this attack came on the Transgender Remembrance Day to talk about people who, who had been killed. And so do those two factors, how much do they weigh on what prosecutors would be looking at here? Well, that's a very good point. So when you're talking about hate crimes or biased crimes, as in Colorado, the prosecutors are going to be needing to look at a lot of circumstantial evidence to prove the motivations behind the attack. Because it's one thing to have victims who are part of a marginalized group, but to prove that that was the reason and the, the drive, or at least in part the drive behind the attack, that's what you're going to be looking at. So, of course, the location of the crime, the day of the, the crime, any sort of past statements, any future statements that are made by the, the suspect in this case are all going to play into whether they can prove that motivation. And, in, and as you mentioned, they don't have to prove that that was the only motivating factor, but it has to be at least in part something that can be shown 
primarily through circumstantial evidence. Here, I don't think we've heard a lot of statements from the uh, alleged shooter relating to the, the motivations behind this, but there are those, those factors you mentioned. So certainly that will be a, a good starting point under that statute. That, I mean, I think that's really key, right? Because you've noted that you don't meet the threshold for a hate crime, uh, successful prosecution uh, by just noting that someone is a member of a protected class, as all these victims were, sure. right? As we understand. Um, but you, you need to show that they were motivated. And as far as we know from the Colorado Springs police chief, the suspect hasn't made any statements despite their repeated attempts. How do you do that in court? How do you win on that in court if he doesn't talk? Well, we're not talking just about statements that are sworn to law enforcement, but yeah. any statements that he's ever made, whether on in the social past. media, whether to friends or family. And if you remember in the Arbery case, there was quite a lot of evidence in the federal trial about these past statements uh, that were that were racist and showed their, their racist intent. And so any statements whatsoever, not just after the arrest, but any at all that could show the motivation behind mm -hmm. this is really what you're going to be looking at in terms of that enhancement for the charge. But I think primarily here, the big question is going to be proving up the murder charges because significantly as far as sentence is concerned, that's really going yeah. to get you the furthest. Well, you yeah. just, so, you took the words out of my mouth. He's, he will, no doubt, be convicted on murder charges. But these are enhanced charges on top of those charges, right? And, and, but it's also important, to, when you're talking about these hate crime charges, to send a message to people. Absolutely, and I think that is a big motivation why these legislatures put the hate crime statutes on the books, because practically speaking, Colorado has a life without parole um, maximum sentence for, for murder charge. So the enhancement of the hate crime isn't going to practically expand anything. Colorado repealed their death penalty a couple of years ago. So in terms of the ultimate outcome here, if he is in fact convicted of one or more of the murder charges, then the, the outcome of the hate crime isn't going to change that sentence. But it does send a message that I think is incredibly important that obviously these cases are, are handled especially carefully with, with protected groups like that. Something that everybody is watching closely. Thank you for bringing your experience on to, to help us break down this conversation. Thank you. It's really important. Ahead, we are going to speak to the veteran who took down the gunman, a captivating interview. He will join CNN this morning live. And in a few moments, we are going to talk about the recent violent and political attacks against the LGBT community with L.A. Times op-ed columnist Elsie Granderson. Well, we've now learned that on Election Day in Arizona, a top elections official had to go into hiding for his own safety. A spokesman for Maricopa County Board of Supervisors Chairman Bill Gates confirmed to CNN that Gates was moved to an undisclosed location because of threats on social media. We're told he still has increased security today. Gates, he's a face you've seen a lot on this network, is a Republican who publicly pushed back on claims by election-denying Republican candidates like Carrie Lake that there were issues with how they were conducting the election. Maricopa County officials report that there was an increase in threats against election workers and officials around the election this year and the primary earlier this year. We should note Maricopa is the most populous county in Arizona and became the focus of conspiracy theorists, you'll remember, after the 2020 election. Ahead this morning, we'll speak about that and a lot more with Arizona's governor-elect, Katie Hobbs. Rising cases of respiratory illness in children on top of flu season are overwhelming hospitals all across the country and emptying shelves at pharmacies. The shortage of key medicines to treat common flu, ear infection, and sore throat 
taking a huge toll here. Our medical correspondent, Dr. Tara Narula, joins us now to talk about this. So what, is this a good morning to you? Is this good a supply morning. chain shortage? What drugs are we seeing here that are that are in short supply? I feel like we keep talking about shortages yeah, for the past so couple of years, yeah. whether it's, you know, baby formula. Last week it was Adderall. And this week it is drugs like Tamiflu, which we use to treat the flu, amoxicillin, which is a very common antibiotic, and also things like albuterol, which we use in inhalers for people mm-hmm. who have asthma and reactive airway disease. We do think that this is really more of a demand issue as opposed to a supply. Um, It's more spot shortages that we think will hopefully resolve in the next couple of months as we see cases go down through the winter season, hopefully. But it is really this combination, um, unprecedented, of the RSV, the flu, and the COVID all at the same time that's really causing this. And a lot of times we see, for example, antibiotics being used when they shouldn't be. So, you know, the reflex is to give an antibiotic, even though it may not be a bacterial illness. Um, But definitely, Yes. Go ahead, Caitlin. (laughs) Well, I was just going to say this is an issue for parents because I I was reading that a lot of them are having to teach their children earlier than they maybe naturally would to take to swallow pills because there's a shortage of the liquid amoxicillin. Correct. And so the important point, though, is for parents not to panic. Um, The FDA is actually advising pharmacies, for example, how to take the pill form and reformulate it into the liquid form. There are other antibiotics available. You know, amoxicillin isn't the only one. They may be more broad spectrum, which isn't always the best more costly and potentially have different side effects, but there are alternatives. This isn't a situation where this is the only drug that can be given if a patient needs it. Um, Also, there may be other pharmacies that parents or patients can go to to get the drug that they need. It may be a further drive, but they can hopefully get it. Um, And finally, I think the important point is to test test, test, because there are tests available for RSV, um, for the flu, and for COVID. And so if you identify that, you're definitely not going to want to give an antibiotic uh, and contribute to the issue with shortage. There's some other news we want to get you on while you're here. You, we, we all hear about cholesterol is bad, but there's the good cholesterol. <laughs> but now there's something new that the good cholesterol may not be as good as we thought. Right. So we talk Come a lot. On. About our <laughs> right, sorry, I right before Thanksgiving. News. Our morning hash brown run is not good for <laughs> not us. I, know. I know. Cholesterol is so confusing. There's the good cholesterol, the bad cholesterol. And yes, for many, many years, actually since the 1970s, there was a big study, the Framingham study, that told us, well, actually high HDL or good cholesterol may be associated with lower risk. And we've sort of been operating under this mantra. So many people, for example, come into my office and say, well, I have good, good cholesterol, so I don't have to worry about anything else. And I think this study really points to the fact that we can't just look at the good cholesterol. In fact, in this study, good cholesterol did not necessarily predict lower risk for either whites or blacks. But the interesting finding as well was that low HDL was predictive only for white people for increased risk of coronary heart disease, but not for black individuals. Mm. And so, again, it really points, we talk about this a lot, to the need for race-specific, ethnic-specific research for us to understand yep. this and not to group everybody together. It is not a one-size-fits-all approach. In Let's say the part again about blacks versus whites. In so the- if you have low HDL, which right. is the protective one, typically right. we say that might be associated with increased risk. But this study found it was only the case for whites, actually mm. for blacks who had low HDL. There was no increased risk. Okay. okay. I was going to ask her to repeat the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. We had 6.14 in the morning. Thank you, doctor. Thank Thank you. Good to have Thank you, doctor. Athletes and fans sending a message at the World Cup in Qatar. Why our next guest was detained before one of the matches. And CNN has obtained intercepted calls from a Russian soldier that illustrates the desperation among Putin's forces. You don't know what to expect here. Sometimes there's friendly fire and idiots shoot at us because they don't see our coordinates. 
More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Musa, Sergeant Pulisic on the run. Pulisic has Weah. Pulisic rolls it in. Tim Weah! An early celebration for Team USA at the World Cup, but the men's team ended in a one-to-one draw with Wales. The U.S. will play England on Friday. But what might be more interesting than what's happening on the field is what's happening off of it. The players on the Iranian national team decided not to sing their country's national anthem and instead stood in silence before their match against England. This was widely understood to be a gesture of support for those anti-regime protests that you have seen happening over women's rights in the streets of Iran in recent months. Some fans in the stadium held up signs supporting the cause of women's rights and freedom. Players for England took a knee before their kickoff against Iran, a gesture of inclusion as well. Also, with homosexuality illegal and punishable with prison in the host country of Qatar, the team captains of several countries say they will not be wearing the rainbow-colored One Love armbands as they had intended after FIFA threatened to give players yellow cards just for doing so. After receiving two yellow cards, of course, a player will face a one-match suspension. FIFA's president said in response, quote, I think for what we Europeans have been doing in the last 3,000 years around the world, we should be apologizing for next, the next 3,000 years before starting to give moral lessons to people. But this moral lesson, giving one-sided, it's just hypocrisy. So let's talk about all of this with Grant Wall. He is a journalist and founder of GrantWall.com, and he was detained for half an hour yesterday before the U.S.-Wales game for just trying to enter the stadium wearing a shirt with a rainbow on it. Grant, thanks very much for being here. I'm sorry that happened to you. Uh, and I think everyone wants to know what you went through. And I wonder what you make of what, you know, Caitlin just read from the head of FIFA saying this is just hypocrisy. You know, I think the FIFA head president, Johnny Infantino, actually makes a decent point when he talks about 3,000 years of Europeans doing bad things to the rest of the world. And I think even the U.S. in, in the last couple hundred years has a few things like that in its history. But unfortunately, the FIFA president, what he took that to mean, I thought was uh, really outrageous, actually, that just because of that, human rights violations in authoritarian countries, like here in Qatar, the outlawing of homosexuality, uh, the treatment of migrant workers, mm -hmm. all of that, that it's not possible, according to the FIFA president, to criticize that, um, which I, I think is just wrong. Um, in terms of my situation before the U.S. game, I was told by FIFA, as they said publicly, and also by U.S. soccer, that wearing a rainbow shirt or having a rainbow flag would not be a problem at all here in Qatar. FIFA was going to make sure that that was not an issue for fans, for media, for any visitors. I showed up at the stadium last night and instantly uh, was pushed aside by the security guards uh, at the media entrance. And I was told explicitly, uh, you need to take off your shirt. Uh, that's a political statement and you cannot enter because of that. I refuse to take off my shirt. Uh, I did get a tweet off, thankfully, about it. I wasn't really planning on putting out publicly that I was wearing the shirt until I was detained. Uh, they forcibly took my phone out of my hands uh, for 30 minutes. They made me stand in front of a CCTV camera. Um, they continue to try to get me to take off my shirt. They stood above me as I sat and, and angrily yelled at me. Um, only after about 30 minutes did a commander uh, come down and let me through wearing my shirt. Um, and he apologized, as did FIFA. 
Are you going to do it again? I probably will. Um, I have got my shirt, uh, and I have no fear here uh, about any of this. It's been a weird week. I mean, literally in the accreditation line when I got here, I took a photo, a very innocuous photo of uh, the World Cup slogan on the wall. There were no signs preventing pictures, and a security guard came over and said no pictures and demanded that I delete the photo from my phone. So it's that kind of a, a situation here in Qatar. And Grant, what was it like as you had been pulled aside? You're in front of this CCTV. You know, they're harassing you over what your shirt, what shirt you were wearing. What were people around you? How were they responding? Uh, a friend of mine from The New York Times came over and tried to help and got detained as well for a little bit. Um, you know, I, I was thinking the entire time, like if I'm being treated this way during the World Cup when the attention of the world is on Qatar and I'm an American uh, who has a pretty prominent media following, imagine how gay people in Qatar outside of World Cups must feel or what they must endure. And that's a lot to think about. Yeah. Here's the thing that I've been sort of um, thinking about a lot over the last couple of days since this happened, Grant. It's the importance of having allies. As you know, during the civil rights movement, you know, there was only, in numbers, there were only so many African-Americans in the country who could stand up for civil rights. They needed whites to join in. So you needed a majority of people, or at least uh, bigger numbers. And it's the same thing when it comes to LGBTQ issues. It's not just for the gay people, especially in, in those countries, who stand up for themselves because they can face death, right? They can face imprisonment. It's important for allies like you to stand up. Talk to us about that, please. It's really important to me, you know, and it, it's not required by uh, any stretch of the imagination. I've got family members who are gay. I've got friends who are gay. I've got journalist friends who are gay who are here in Qatar. Um, but you don't need that to to be supportive, to to be an ally. And so I was thinking about all those people yesterday. Um, I was thinking about Colorado Springs. I was thinking about all sorts of stuff. And um, if I have to be detained for 30 minutes, it's kind of annoying, but it's not an issue for me. And uh, so I was glad to at least help out a little bit. It's really well said, Grant. Yeah. Thank you so thank much. Thank you, Grant. Appreciate it. Be well. Be safe, thank okay? And thank you for standing I'm up. good. Thanks so and much. And if he wears it again today, obviously yeah. sending an important message. Yeah. Well, we'll have and we'll have him back if he'll yeah, come back. We yeah. will. All right. Uh, Georgia's Senate candidate Herschel Walker has released a new ad targeting the LGBTQ community. And this is just days after the shooting in Colorado. LZ Granderson is here to talk about it with us. And the first pictures of the comedian Jay Leno after he suffered burns from a car fire now released from a hospital. We really need to talk about hate in our politics after that massacre at Colorado Springs LGBTQ Club and why it matters. It matters what leaders say. Advocates say that this year marks a major jump in anti-LGBTQ legislation and sentiment in politics and in the country, really. The data, latest data from the FBI shows that hate crimes are up against LGBTQ people. And when I talk about why it matters about what leaders say, that includes campaign ads. I want you to pay attention. Campaign ads like this one, just released by Georgia Senate candidate Herschel Walker. Here it is. 
I'm Riley Gaines, a 12-time NCAA All-American. And I'm Herschel Walker. For more than a decade, I worked so hard, 4 a.m. practices to be the best. But my senior year, I was forced to compete against a biological male. That's unfair and wrong. A man won the swimming title that belonged to a woman, and Senator Warnock voted to let it happen. Warnock's afraid to stand up for female athletes. Herschel Walker stands up for what's right. That was released just 48 hours after the shooting, and we have reached out to the Walker campaign and have not heard back. So joining us now is op-ed columnist for the Los Angeles Times and the host of the podcast Life Out Loud, LZ Granderson. LZ, thanks so much uh, for joining. Appreciate it. We're going to talk about the whole thing in general, right? What's happening, what happened in Colorado Springs, the anti-LGBTQ sentiment in the, in the country and the, the, the hate and the danger and the violence that members face. Um, but what do you think about that ad and the timing? there well i, I I'm, I'm confused to be quite honest with you because when you look at the exit polls um the issues that are on voters minds number one obviously was the economy how do you put food on the table paying for gas the inflation number two was abortion uh following down from that were issues regarding security and safety education uh, i did not see very many voters stress uh, confusion or, or anxiety regarding trans athletes competing in sports in high school or in college. And so this seems to be a manufactured issue from Herschel Walker, who has nowhere else to turn because he has no credibility when it comes to discussing the economy because we understand his business dealings. He's surrounded by controversy regarding abortion. So where else is he going to turn? Hate. And that's what this ad is, hate. But here's the important thing to remember. Trans athletes are already banned in Georgia. That was cited to law earlier. I'm not saying that to celebrate. I'm saying that to say, what exactly is this ad supposed to do for Georgian voters? Mm-hmm. It's already banned in the state. So why? what is the purpose of this ad? Only to, to spew hate. To That's use, it. To use gay people, LG, members of the LGBTQ community, as political pawns, which has been happening uh, in the country. But this specifically is that, because as you said, it's already banned. So then why? the whole question, LZ, is... Why? And does he not and the people who are around him not understand the danger of sort of, you know, injecting this into the culture? Of course, they they may recognize it, but it's secondary to their main purpose, which is to get Herschel Walker elected. And oftentimes when people are focused in on that singular issue, you know, they will try to take advantage of groups that, you know, people may have, you know, negative feelings about. And as a queer person, you know, you and I both know we've been targeted multiple times. I can remember shaking in my office in New York City when the Bush campaign was trying to get reelected and targeted queer people by trying to pass an amendment in the Constitution banning same-sex marriages. We have been pawns in this conversation for politics for decades and decades and decades, like many other oppressed groups. And this is just another example of that. To to your point about legislation, uh, the data show there's been an you know, there are over 300 uh, anti-LGBTQ proposed bills so far this year. And I want to get your reaction to what the, the president of GLAAD said when it comes to legislation, but also rhetoric and a direct tie to violence. Listen to this. And that is a direct response from the rhetoric from these politicians that we've been seeing. Rhetoric does lead to violence. And we have been, we're seeing a 12 year high in hate crimes, 41% increase in hate crimes against the transgender community. And we 
see a direct line between that and what our politicians are saying on the airwaves and how they're pushing forth over 300 anti-LGBTQ bills this year so far. You see that connection as well? Oh, absolutely. You know, I, I wrote a piece uh, back in 2009 um, that I, I won a GLAAD award for. And forgive me if I get a little emotional because I think about that night all the time still. I was uh, covering the NBA All-Star Weekend and I was surrounded by a group of really large men who did not appreciate the fact that I wore my T-shirt really tight. And they were going to basically kick my ass and I thought I was going to die that night. And if it wasn't for police officers who were nearby and shot me into vain, I may have been killed. So I think about rhetoric all the time. I think about violence against my community all the time because I could have very well been a victim as well. And to the politicians who are utilizing this rhetoric just to get reelected, you know, you can't duck the fact that this blood is on your hands but you're, because you're contributing to the mentality that allows for this to happen. When you allow slurs to exist, when you allow certain attitudes that are that are really harmful to exist in your space or worse yet, use it in campaign ads, what you're doing is giving permission for people who have really nefarious intentions to go through with those intentions. And we've seen it time and time again. It's not anecdotal. There are other groups that are also suffering in the exact same way. We've experienced this globally. So I just really encourage, you know, particularly Republicans who, you know, are prone to have these kind of ads. I, I just ask you just to be really cautious in terms of how you engage in these conversations, because whether you believe it or not, this blood is for your hands because you're contributing to this echo chamber that is leading to all this violence. Yeah. Just talks about the power of the wor of words. Yeah. yeah. I, it's funny. I, they're so impressed by your tight T-shirt. There's a whole lot of other stuff going on uh, there. I just I, I had to say that. Elsie. <laughs> <laughs> you, know you know what's so funny, Don? I was actually on my way to the Playboy party on top of that. So I was like, I was going into the epitome of heterosexuality, wearing a tight T-shirt because I was feeling myself and yep. I almost got gay back. I mean, like, it was just, it was so much. I just spent the entire night in my room crying and thinking back out that weekend. I'm just saying thou doth protest all. too much many times, um, you know, and it's usually the people who have something <laughs> to hide that they don't want to talk about who can be the most homophobic. You, you know what I'm saying? LZ. Well, that's a, that's a different conversation. That's a whole nother show. <laughs> I appreciate your candor. Thank you for what you do. Thank you for standing up. And we know it's early where you are, but so appreciate it even more. Be well. Thank you, LZ. Thank you yeah. very much. Up next prayers to the families that lost in Colorado Springs. Prayers up to that, those families. 100%. Thank, Thank you. you. Up next, we're going to take you live to Ukraine and show you new video of Russian soldiers surrendering in recently a recently liberated town. And CNN This Morning is also live in the Florida Keys. We have dramatic images of the Coast Guard rescuing migrants from an overloaded boat. You know what this reminds me of? All right, welcome back to CNN This Morning. We have obtained intercepted calls from a Russian soldier revealing the desperate situation facing Putin's forces on the front lines in Ukraine. In one of these report recordings, the soldier describes, this is a Russian soldier, describing what he sees on the ground as a third world war. And a warning before you see this report, some of the images are very disturbing. Our Matthew Chance reports from the ground in central Ukraine. 
as Russia's military highlights its barrage of Ukraine. CNN has obtained exclusive recordings of a Russian soldier describing the brutal reality of life on the front lines. The commander's position was shelled, so he packed up and moved further back. But what about us? Aren't we humans too? The Russian soldier was recorded phoning his girlfriend back home, according to Ukrainian intelligence, and telling her candidly about the severe military setback suffered in the two months since he arrived. We had 96 people in our unit, but now there are less than 50. You don't know what to expect here. Sometimes there's friendly fire and idiots shoot at us because they don't see our coordinates. But it is advancing Ukrainian forces that are the major threat, compounding low morale with high bloodshed. Ukrainian officials now reacting to this extraordinary video of Russian soldiers apparently surrendering, geolocated by CNN, to a recently liberated town in eastern Ukraine. Come on out, one by one, a Ukrainian soldier calls out. Then a short burst of gunfire before the video cuts off. Later, a Ukrainian military drone shows what appears to be the same men in pools of blood. The Kremlin says it's an execution. But Ukraine says the soldiers feigned surrender and fired at the Ukrainians, accusing Russia of its own war crime. No one disputes the horror. It's unclear if the dead Russians were regular troops or deployed as part of the Kremlin's partial mobilisation seen here earlier this year. But the soldier recorded on the phone indicates he was recently conscripted, complaining bitterly at being unable to leave the war zone. Being mobilized is crap. Nobody can go home until Putin announces the order. There's no way to return. And if we weren't here, they, the Ukrainians, would already be at our borders. They would shell Moscow, Yekaterinburg, shell everything. And that constant threat of Ukrainian attack is having a terrifying effect. In particular, drone strikes, which appear to have left the soldier particularly nervous. My nerves are on edge. I'm afraid of every rustle. Every bang, every click makes me drop to the ground. In Russian-controlled eastern Ukraine, the funerals are underway for more of those killed on the brutal front line. Deaths, Ukrainian officials insist, would never have happened but for Russia's war. Well, Poppy, the big change here in Ukraine over the past couple of days has been the freezing temperatures. You can see the first snow of the season has fallen and settled on the ground. This, of course, as Russian forces continue to pound energy infrastructure targets across the country, causing supply shortages and power cuts, plunging millions of Ukrainians into a very cold, very dark winter. Poppy, back to you. Matthew Chance, thank you so much for your reporting live from central Ukraine. Well, this is really, really fascinating. We're going to talk about the fact that Chris Hemsworth, famous actor, is stepping back from doing what he loves because of a medical discovery that he says has made him reevaluate his life.
a beautiful shot of New York City there. The former Tonight Show host Jay Leno has been released from a Los Angeles hospital after a gas fire in his garage that left him with serious burns to his face. Look at, look, you can see it. His face, his chest, and his hands. He is seen with members of his care team at the burn center right there. The 72-year-old needed two surgeries to treat his injuries, but is expected to make a full recovery. We wish him all he, the best. Get he better. He still time. has that great Jay Leno smile. Yeah. Completely. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah We're absolutely wishing him the best. Also this morning, the actor Chris Hemsworth, you know him as Thor, says he is taking a break from acting after he learned that he is a heightened risk of developing Alzheimer's. You have a very rare combination, which is you have two copies of APO E4, a set from your mom and a set from your dad. And what does that mean exactly? That means you have an increased risk of Alzheimer's disease. Mm. You're constantly thinking you're going to live forever, especially as a young individual. And then to all of a sudden be told, oh, this may be the thing that might take you out was like, whoa. Right now, 6.5 million people over the age of 65 are living with, Al with Alzheimer's, according to estimates from the Alzheimer's Association. So joining us now to talk about this and what Chris Hemsworth just learned is Dr. Chris T. Purnell, Regent at Large for the American College of Preventative Medicine. This genetic predisposition that he learned about that he has, it's not a diagnosis, no. but it, would you describe it more of a strong indication that this could happen or what's the, what's the sense? I think the easiest way for everyone to understand it is that if you have this particular gene and this variant, that your risk to develop Alzheimer's increases. Normally, if you're 65 or older, about 2% of persons of that age group will develop Alzheimer's in the year. If you have one copy of that gene, that risk triples. If you have two copies of that gene, that risk increases by 10 to 15%. So it's not a certain diagnosis. Well, does it help as far as like researching, right? I mean, uh, listen, I come from um, I, I am particularly interested in this story. My grandmother had Alzheimer's, had a cousin who had early onset, I have uh, other family members who I don't want to call out, whatever, but um, having issues with Alzheimer's. And if you're able to diagnose this earlier, are there, is there a medication that you can take? Are there things that you can do? Does it help you in at least knowing so you can get your affairs in order? Do, do you know what I'm saying? I totally hear what you're saying. So for me, I'm a preventive medicine physician, right? So prevention is power. Knowing that you have increased risk, you can focus on general behaviors to help you remain healthier. What are those general behaviors? Um, engaging in physical activity, um, ensuring that you have a healthy diet so you're not developing overweight or obesity or you have diabetes or high blood pressure or even depression and memory loss and hearing loss or things like that can put you at risk to develop it. So knowing is a way for you to develop a roadmap to live healthier. Was it so? Is it then? What do you think the point is for him? Is there a point to what he's doing, or do you understand what I'm saying? Because he says, "I'm going to step back." Would this mean that other people, if we're talking to people across the country, should other people sort of step back and enjoy their lives if they're increased, or just reassess? What's I, think happening? It's, I think it's tough news to get. He's a fairly young man, um, but everybody should step back and enjoy their lives, right? We're living through an unprecedented crisis. We've been through the worst pandemic that we've seen in 100 years. The battle with knowing about a disease like Alzheimer's is that we have limited tools in our war chest, if you will. Um, the fact that he does know, he says he wants to embrace his family more. But more importantly, I hope that all of us walk away with the more that you can be active, physically active, 
active, eat well, um, the more that you can prevent common diseases like high blood pressure, the better off you'll be. Mm. I just keep thinking about, you know, that saying, what will you do with this one precious life? Reminds us of that, right? Very important. Like how Very important. My dad was 49 when he died. Wow, Pops. I forgot about that. 49, I mean, yeah. and he had like this big life by 49, but still 49. And for so many people, I, I thank Chris Hemsworth for helping us like yeah. remember that. Definitely. I just lost my cousin who was I'm 62. So wow. Unexpectedly so heard this news. And yes, when you hear about someone very young losing their life or someone very young hearing about what could be a terminal illness, it should give us all pause to embrace life more fully. What Absolutely. are we doing with each day? Yeah. What a great message, and thank you for bringing us, you know, such important perspective on all of this. Thank you. Thank Thanks, you. Doctor. Happy Thanksgiving to you. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the program. Good morning. It is Tuesday November 22nd. News about the suspected gunman who killed five people at an LGBTQ nightclub in Colorado Springs expected to face murder and hate crime charges. We are learning more about the victims and we're hearing extraordinary stories of survival. Also this morning, pediatric ICUs are operating over capacity as sick children and their parents are waiting in line for care ahead of the holidays. RSV, COVID, and the flu have pushed hospitals nationwide to the brink. We'll tell you what you need to know. We will also talk about the latest on this possible huge nationwide rail strike that could cripple the U.S. economy just before the holidays. We'll speak to the leader of one of the biggest unions involved. Yeah, all at the worst time right now. And happening today, the Department of Justice makes its first significant move since naming a special counsel in its Mar-a-Lago probe. But first, this is what we're going to begin with. The suspected gunman who killed five people at an LGBTQ nightclub in Colorado Springs remains hospitalized this morning and not talking to investigators. We are learning a whole lot more about the victims and hearing from the people who survived the shooting about the terror they witnessed. This guy, the look on his face was full of hate. It was complete hatred. It seemed like he was firing from his waist. Uh, but I, it happened so fast, I, I didn't really grasp it, what was going on until I got shot in the leg. I took off running to the back and I got shot. I knew I got shot a few times. I fell down. He proceeded to shoot me. I got back up. I made it out of the back of the club. I got my phone. And I called my dad because I, my, me and my dad are like best friends. It's really, really great, weird relationship. And um, he's always stood by me too thick and thin. And I... That was the last person that I wanted to talk to. I have never prayed so sincerely and quickly in my life as I did in that moment. After about a minute and a half, I, I decided I needed to get out of there. So I, uh, I got up and, and when I went inside, I saw um, what I believe uh, was probably the gunman lying on the ground, um, getting beat up and, and kicked and, and yelled at by two very brave uh, people who I still don't know the identity of those two people, but I, I hope I can find out one day because I, I truly believe those two people saved my life. 
Everything has changed for them forever. Let's go to CNN's Rosa Flores, live for CNN this morning in Colorado Springs. Hello, Rosa. You know, we've learned the names of the victims in this tragedy, and I want to know, what have, what have their family members said? You know, Don, hearts are heavy here in this community as the community learns the names of the victims. And also, like you said, just a little bit about them from their families. Let me share with you their names. Raymond Green Vance, his family describing him as being kind, selfless, gifted, and willing to go out of his way for anyone. Then there's Kelly Loving, her sister, Tiffany, saying that her sister was just a good person. She was loving and caring and very sweet. Ashley Paw, her husband, uh, saying that his wife just had a huge heart, that she worked for a nonprofit that helps foster children find homes. And there's Daniel Aston. He had moved to Colorado Springs to be close to his family. And Derek Rump. Um, I spoke to survivor Ed Sanders, who told me that that Derek would never let him go home um, without getting an Uber or if he couldn't get an Uber, he would drive him home to make sure that he got home safely. And then Don, of course, you know that now we know the names of the two heroes that authorities say saved countless lives. That's Richard Fierro and Thomas James. And as you know, Fierro is the U.S. Army veteran who says that his instincts simply kicked in. So Rosa, I, I want to ask you because you know, we are being told by investigators that he's not cooperating or not cooperating or not speaking to investigators. Do, what do we know about the investigation into the shooter this morning? Well, the investigation is ongoing. According to the district attorney, formal charges have not been filed yet, but the shooter is the suspected shooter is being held pending possible charges, multiple. Uh, at this point, the DA uh, saying possibly five first degree murder charges and five hate crimes. Now, the district attorney says that all those are possible charges, but that uh, Don, as you know, once formal charges are filed, he says those charges could grow because not only are five people dead in this case, there's also at least 19 others who were injured. Rosa Flores, thank you very much this morning. Poppy. Well, this deadly shooting has raised a lot of questions, I think rightly so, about Colorado's red flag law and why it wasn't used here. So we want you to, to understand what it is. It's also known as the Extreme Risk Protection Order. It was passed just a few years ago in 2019. And what it allows is it allows family members, roommates, friends, or law enforcement to petition a judge to temporarily take away a person's firearms if they are deemed too dangerous to themselves or others. And if a judge grants that petition, a court hearing will be held before a decision is made on whether to seize those weapons. As we first told you yesterday, police arrested the Club Q suspect in connection with a bomb threat that he had made that led to a standoff with his mother just a year ago. But there's no evidence that the police or any family members or anyone surrounding the suspected shooter attempted to use this red flag law that could have temporarily stripped him of his weapons. So we asked the Colorado Attorney General, you'll remember, yesterday morning about why. And this is what he told us. I do believe officers know we have a red flag law. We need to make sure it's top of mind and that everyone understands how it works and what the rationale and reasoning for it is. Um, I don't have enough information to know exactly what the officers knew. What we can do is make sure that we embrace this as a call to action to better educate about this law, to make sure that law enforcement understands it and is able to use it to protect lives.
And here's what else you should know. More than half of Colorado's counties initially opposed this legislation. They declared themselves Second Amendment sanctuaries. Those counties argued that enforcing red flag laws would infringe on Second Amendment rights. And El Paso County, home to Colorado Springs, where this shooting happened, was one of those counties. And yet, according to Kaiser Health News, as of last June, 20 of the 37 counties in Colorado that publicly took a stand against this red flag law actually used it. El Paso County being one of them. So why it wasn't enforced when this suspect threatened his own mother in that bomb threat last year? That is unclear. All right. This morning, as Colorado is mourning the lives of those five people who were killed, there are still major questions about the suspect. He is right now still hospitalized, has not been released on bond, is not expected to be released on bond. There is new reporting, though, this morning from The Washington Post that he once changed his name amid questions about what led up to this attack. So with us now to talk more about this is CNN's Athena Jones. Athena, you know, obviously the focus here is always on the victims. That is what it should be on their families, on this community. But People, as this suspect is waiting on charges, they want to know, you know, what's going on here. Is he going to be charged with hate crimes charges? So what have you learned about um, about him himself? Well, just like the investigators, we, we journalists are trying to piece together a profile of this suspect. Why did he maybe why, learn why he did what he did? We've learned that his grandfather uh, is an outgoing California state assemblyman by the name of Randy Vol- Vopel. Uh, he has been a assemblyman since 2016, but he recently lost his reelection bid. Uh, this is uh, the, the, the father of, of, of the suspect's mother, Laura Vopel. Uh, Randy Vopel attracted attention when he compared the January 6th attack on the Capitol to the Revolutionary War. Here's what he said. He said, this is Lexington and Concord. First shots fired against tyranny. Tyranny will follow in the aftermath of the Biden swear-in on January 20th. Now, he later tried to walk that back, saying he didn't condone the violence that took place uh, that Wednesday at the Capitol. And it's not clear at this point how what kind of interactions this uh, 22-year-old suspect had with his grandfather. But we are learning a little bit more about his family. Like, yeah. And one thing to note is the an aide for that lawmaker told The New York Times that he had been estranged from that branch of his family and had not seen his grandson for about a decade. But, of course, major questions about that. Yeah. Uh, certainly. And there's also more questions about uh, this video that, you're, that you guys... Uh, yeah, there's, there's, there's a standoff that we were talking about that happened back in 2021, the, uh, the suspect. Now, why don't you look at it and, then, and get the response to it. Here it is. This is your boy. I've got the f***ing outside. Look at that. They got a beat on me. You see that right there? Ed's got their rifles out. If they breach, I'm going to blow it to holy hell. So I've got to ask you, considering, you know, Pompey just did the whole layout on the red flag laws and what have you, and you saw what happened there in the House. So what is happening here, Athena? Well, this is a standoff, as you mentioned. In 2021, he had been accused of, uh, of threatening his mother with a bomb and multiple weapons and ammunition. Uh, according to the El Paso County Sheriff's Office, several houses in that neighborhood had to be evacuated. And so you see a very agitated young man. He's wearing a helmet, some sort of body armor, ranting about uh, law enforcement, challenging them to, to breach the house. Now, in the end, uh, he, you, you don't see any officers on that video. He was later taken into custody without any incident. But this is concerning. We got this from, uh, CNN got this from his mother's former landlord who saw him live streaming this on his mother's Facebook page, took a screen grab of it and shared it with us. She was really concerned. She told the New York Times over the weekend, how could something like this happen and the authorities not intervene how, and take the weapon, take any weapons away? How could this person exactly. have weapons? The same issue with these red flag laws. We also learned in the Washington Post that this young man had suffered online bullying as a teenager. He had grown up, spent time in Texas and San Antonio. 
His name used to be a Nicholas Brink. And right before his 16th birthday, after uh, undergoing a lot of online bullying and harassment, he petitioned to have his name changed. Mm. And so that's why he, he's now called Anderson Lee Aldrich. That is not his original name. Uh, we understand this is because he had been subject to bullying. So we're getting a little bit more of a picture yeah. about what, what this alleged uh, shooter so that yeah, did, what he went through in his life. Investigating and trying to figure out sure. his past and all of that. Got well, it, and maybe it potentially it. helped um, evade, you know, problematic issues in his past. You know, really we don't know. Point, Those right. are still really big questions about that. I think, of course, investigators are looking into all of this. So thank you for bringing us the latest. Ahead, we are going to speak to the veteran who actually took down the gunman. Rich Fierro joins CNN This Morning Live. So we have an update for you this morning on, on this disturbing story. This is about a white father and son accused of chasing down a shooting and shooting at a black FedEx driver in Mississippi earlier this year. Gregory and Brandon Case have both had their charges upgraded to attempted murder. Police say the pair chased down 24-year-old DeMontario Gibson and shot at his delivery truck just month, moments after he had made a deliver, delivery, had delivered a package to their home. When the pair was first arrested back in January, Brandon, the son, was charged with attempting to cause bodily injury with a firearm, and his father, Gregory, was charged with conspiracy. But a grand jury just indicted both men on attempted murder and conspiracy charges. Gibson spoke to CNN about the incident back in February, comparing his case to that of Ahmaud Arbery that was in Georgia, the 25-year-old black man who was murdered by three white men near Brunswick, Georgia, in 2020. Watch this. I can definitely see the similarities, and uh, that's why I feel it's my responsibility to speak up because Amar Aubrey didn't survive to speak up for himself, so I want to take that upon myself to do that for me and him as well. So I need to tell you that a trial date for Gregory and Brandon Case has not been set. We will follow this story. Also this morning, more than 100 migrants have been rescued from an overloaded boat in the rough waters off the Florida Keys. The U.S. Coast Guard released these images showing many of the rescued were young children. CNN's Layla Santiago joins us live from Isla Morada, Florida. Layla, what can you tell us about this rescued effort, but also, of course, what led to it? Yeah, you know, Caitlin, when you see those images, you see that these rescue efforts uh, included babies that were pulled out uh, out of the vessel there. You can see why it's so heartbreaking. So let's let's talk about what we know at this point. We are right now at Whale Harbor Marina, and it was not far from where we are, where a good Samaritan reported an overloaded vessel yesterday morning. That vessel eventually came up on a sandbar, and there were some pretty intense rescue efforts underway uh, by the Coast Guard. When I spoke to the Coast Coast Guard overnight. One of the first things they mentioned was how rough it was, how bad the conditions were. It was raining, rough seas. Uh, we're talking about five to six feet, a 25 mile per hour winds. So not an ideal time for anyone to be out there, much less that type of vessel. But still a lot of questions remaining about how long they were out there uh, and, and what exactly uh, will 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 happen next. Yeah, and of course, big questions about that, those rescue efforts, those poor children, as you see in those images. Layla, thank you for that update. We'll stay with you. Yeah. All right, parents, listen up. Pediatric hospitals across the country are running out of beds for children. This is largely because RSV cases have surged across the country, coupled with the flu. The RSV virus is severely impacting the number of available ventilators and hospital beds, including 
at Children's Minnesota Hospital, where administrators say they are almost out of ICU beds. So I want to bring in the CEO and president of Children's Minnesota Hospital, Dr. Mark Gorlick. Doctor, thanks very much for being with us. I got to tell you this. When I saw this headline cross, we really wanted you on because my friend, good friend from Minnesota with two little boys, just told me they experienced this last week. How, how bad is oh, it? Oh, boy, yeah. How, how, how bad is it? We, we are seeing the, the, the biggest surge of respiratory illness, wintertime respiratory illness that we've ever seen going back. Our number of admissions, patients admitted to our hospital for respiratory illness in October was double the previous record number. Okay, so then the question is, if this is, if this is my child, what do I do? Um, and we have some video, if we could, I think you've seen it. I want to just play it for our, our viewers to see some things that sure. babies have been going through. It's that quick breathing from the, from the abdomen like that that's concerning. Right. We'll, sh we'll show you the other one. And if you could just speak to what parents that see that and the, sort of the head nodding, right? What do parents that witness this do if there literally are no ICU beds for their kids? And so a couple of things to keep in mind. RSV is a very common virus. Most people will get it at some point in their childhood. In many people, it causes very mild symptoms, a cold. But in some cases, it's more severe. There is no treatment for RSV. There's nothing that makes it go away faster. The treatments are aimed at dealing with the symptoms. And so the main reason that children would need to come into the hospital is if their symptoms are severe enough, as you saw in this video, they're having enough respiratory distress that they might need extra oxygen, for example. So the kinds of things that you saw here, this baby whose belly was moving out when, when they breathed, uh, head bobbing, pulling in their muscles, those are signs that, that a parent would need to seek medical care. Um, first step might be their pediatrician's office or an urgent care or emergency department to get checked out to see whether or not they actually need to go into the hospital. Um, our hospitals, we are operating at capacity, uh, but we do are, are able to accommodate those babies. Sometimes they have to wait a while. Sometimes we're treating patients in the emergency department for a longer period of time. We're opening up alternate uh, areas within our hospital that might not be used on the nights and weekends to accommodate those babies. So we can take care of them, but those are the kinds of things that a parent would look for to indicate that, yeah, maybe I should go in. But a lot of those symptoms that we just showed, those are pretty common symptoms for children. I, I have two nephews that are the same age. They're in preschool. They are often getting sick because they're around other kids. So, you know, runny nose, fever, the coughing, and the last loss of appetite. You know, how do parents know what to distinguish? We know when it is time to go to the hospital because they don't want to go prematurely given they're so at capacity. Right. Um, again, you, you're right. Those symptoms, runny nose, cough, fever, very common. Uh, the baby that you saw in that video, really labored breathing, not very common. And it's particularly the younger infants who are at risk. Less than six months are considered to be the highest risk. So certainly a parent with a younger infant who's having those kinds of, um, that kind of difficulty breathing should be, uh, should be probably seeking medical care. i just ask you one quick follow-up question, because last week, the big association that oversees you guys, the Children's Hospital Association and the American Academy of Pediatrics, went to the Biden administration and said, we need emergency aid because this in children, some children, is the equivalent to what COVID was pre-vaccine for adults. Is that true? I mean, do you agree you need, what is it, emergency funding from the Biden administration? Yeah, we certainly, you know, we are, um, we are strained on space, on staff, on supplies, and any help would be welcome. And so certainly uh, this could be one additional tool that could help Children's hospitals like Children's Minnesota and our colleagues around the country get the resources that they need. Okay. Doctor, thanks for 
this, but thanks for what you guys do for kids every day. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. All right. Ahead, Disney stock is rising after the surprise announcement that the former CEO, Bob Iger, is back in charge. And the United States Vice President Kamala Harris is talking 2024 this morning. Wow. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Our former CEO at Disney was a guy named Bob Iger. Old Bob, two years ago, old Bob decided to retire, so he picked a new Bob to replace him, Bob Chapek. But last night, out of nowhere, the board of directors fired new Bob and convinced old Bob to come back, which means new Bob is now old Bob. (laughs) And old Bob's the new new Bob. It's like what happened with Coca-Cola when they switched the formula, and then now we're back to Bob Classic, I guess. Okay, he got that from Kira Swisher. Thank you. Bob 1, Bob 2. Very much. That's right. Bob 30. Wasn't there a new Coke? Coca-Cola? Yeah, it's a disaster. Was ago, there was clear Pepsi. And, no, no was, I was a lie. No, you weren't. Kalen wasn't. So it was new Coke, and everybody <laughs> hated it, so they'd go back to Coke, and then it was Coke original, whatever. But anyway, get it. Thank you, Jimmy Kimmel, for expressing exactly how I felt about this. I'm like, what the heck is going on? Fun fact, I hear a lot of Disney executives were at the Elton John concert. When they found out. When they found out, they were <laughs> all on their phones <laughs> going, whoa! And then Chapek was supposed to introduce Elton John. And he didn't show. That did not happen. Fun fact. Disney stock jumping about 6% after the big announcement that Bob Iger will return to Disney as CEO, retaking the reins from his handpicked successor, Bob Chapek. Our business correspondent, Rahel Solomon, is here. And so, hello, this is crazy. Just one day, it's back. The stock is up. This is what I say. And then he's making big changes. There are certain people who are meant for certain jobs. Yep. Mm. And he is one of those people. He was built for that job. New Bob, so old, like Bob. old Bob. Exactly. No, old Bob. <laughs> but who's new Bob now? Um, he's now new no. Bob. Well, he's Bob. I'll, I'll try to make sense of it. Yes. The, oh, you know, redo the, it. The, the current Bob. The current Bob. Yes. So look. Just to put this in context, it was Sunday night that the staff learned that the old Bob, Bob Iger, would be coming back. By Monday evening, there was a memo sent to employees essentially announcing changes. So one of the big changes is that one of the top executives, Kareem Daniel, he's going to be stepping down. He led the media and entertainment division. He was also a Chapek ally, Chapek being the new Bob. Uh, we also learned in that, em- in that memo that over the coming weeks, there will be more organizational and operation- operating changes at the company, i.e. more to come there. And we're also just learning that streaming will likely be much more of a focus heading into this Disney Plus, of course. So earlier this month, Disney reported that they lost $1.5 billion in the quarter, still adding subscribers. But those type of losses, there's not really an appetite for that in this investing market. Investors didn't like it. But it seems like a lot of the changes that we're hearing now are, are changes that Bob Chapek had made when he took over for Bob Iger. Now that Bob Iger is back, he seems to be reversing some of those big changes. Have we heard from Bob Chapek on this massive and sudden change at the helm? I don't think we have. And one thing that's really interesting, the timing of all of this was really curious, right? Because it was just in June that the board had unanimously approved a three-year extension to Chapek's contract till until about 2025, I believe it was. And then just in November, they made this sudden one. What we're now seeing in reporting from the Financial Times this morning is that apparently there was a staff rebellion from top executives over the summer who were Iger allies. And so it seems to make sense because uh, just within the last few months, things took a real sudden shift. So now we're learning that there may have been some sort of uh, discontent among top executives who were Iger loyalists. Iger is so interesting. I mean, he also started at the ground level at ABC so many years ago and really worked 
worked every yeah. level to get Poppy, there. And, and Rahel, let me ask you, but how, uh, I've spoken to people who, you know, executives who say this is really unusual. It is. For a board to do this, it takes guts. Um, and uh-huh. because people don't want to admit like, oh, the, you know, they made a mistake or that the other person, you know. Yeah. You know the I think it takes guts. Know. And it's not, I mean, Howard Schultz did it twice. So who's had three. Yeah, at Starbucks. Sorry, three times over. But it, it's rare for sure. But yeah, it takes guts. Also, the board maybe needs to reexamine why the decision was made unanimously to re-up Chapek not long ago. I guess my question is, there is there no one else who could do the job, though? Because it is really unusual right. to bring someone back. Like, yep. that's what speaks to unusual nature. I mean, it's not think, forcing someone out. But is yeah. there no one else... It's a great they point about succession planning. Yeah, right? I mean, the truth is that Chapek was Bob Iger's handpicked successor. So it's a great question. He's known, I mean, and the, a new person would be an un, another unknown entity. Yeah, or maybe it comes from within the company. I think it's a great question just in terms of, I mean, clearly Iger had the golden touch in his previous tenure. Will he have the same touch this time? We'll see. We'll see. Thank you, Rahel. Thanks, Rahel. Good to see That's you. Fascinating. All right. You've been hearing about this. You're going to hear a lot more about this in the next few weeks. A crippling nationwide rail strike is a real possibility after a big union rejected the latest deal. We'll tell you just how it could impact you and your family ahead. Can you imagine though you're like at a concert? Workers at the biggest and most powerful rail union have voted down a tentative contract deal. And if the two sides cannot reach an agreement soon, there might be a strike, which industry officials have estimated could cost the economy more than $2 billion per day. Freight rail obviously makes up a huge chunk of the American supply chain. And a strike means that food prices could skyrocket even more than they've already been raised because rail is absolutely crucial in getting those products to consumers. Even gas prices could increase, given 300,000 barrels are moved daily by rail. And about 75% of all cars and trucks built in the United States or imported here are also moved by rail. That could mean a big shortage and massive price hikes. And if you're a commuter, you might also be in trouble because nearly 97% of passenger rail used by Amtrak actually runs on freight lines. On top of all of that, the holidays are obviously right around the corner, meaning the strike could come during peak buying season. So joining us now to talk about the stakes here is Jeremy Ferguson, who is the president of Smart Transportation Division. That's the union that yesterday rejected that tentative labor deal and represents about 28,000 conductors, brakemen, yardmen, and others who all have a lot involved here. So, Jeremy, thank you so much for joining us this morning. You know, you say that you believe a strike could still be averted. How? First, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be on here. And uh, I would just simply like to say that, yes, a strike could be averted. Uh, The ball is back in the carrier's hands at this point and we're back in their court. And uh, we go back into negotiations this afternoon. Uh, Talks will begin. I will be there with the uh, three other unions that have failed tentative agreements. Uh, But uh, it will be a uh, difficult process and we're going to do our best. We want to keep America moving and uh, we sure surely want to help Santa Claus uh, get those uh, gifts uh, delivered for Christmas also. Yeah, I know a lot of parents are (laughs) are worried about that as well. Uh, What question or what conversations are you having with the White House? Have you been speaking with the Labor Secretary? What does that look like right now? Very limited discussions uh, with the Secretary of Labor at this point. Uh, Yesterday was a blur. Things went quickly. I know everybody is watching it. Uh, Capitol Hill is uh, uh, watching also, but um, no no real engagement yet at this point. Uh, In terms of the deal. I'm sure that will come today. 
In terms of the deal that uh, that eight of the unions agreed to and four have rejected so far, but I, I know you all stand together, but um, it included a 24 percent raise for workers over five years, additional personal day cap on health care costs, um, modifying the strict attendance policies. But I understand still no sick days officially included. That's a big hang up point. I thought it was interesting that one of your members of the union, Jordan Boone, told the Washington Post, quote, some of us would rather be forced by Congress to take something than to vote on something we're not on board with. Just to be clear, it could Congress can make them go back to work. That's written in federal law. And they could enforce a worse deal than what's on the table right now for your folks. Is that right? You are correct. Yes. So. You know, some of this vote, I think, uh, wasn't necessarily a uh, referendum vote against the contract as much as it was against uh, their employers. Uh, Times are tough out here right now with all the cutbacks. Uh, Members aren't necessarily voting on on the money issues. It's uh, the quality of life and how they're treated uh, with dignity and respect uh, while they're at work. Uh, when, When big corporations cut too deep and they expect everybody else to pick up the pace, uh, it becomes intolerable. Uh, you don't have the family time. You don't have the time to get adequate uh, uh, rest, mental rest uh, from being on the road and being at the away from home terminal. All the issues that we have to deal with when we're keeping America moving 24 hours a day, seven days a week, nonstop. I got to tell you, it doesn't sound good. I mean, and you don't sound optimistic because you just told Caitlin that, you know, you didn't, hadn't had any talks with the White House. Um, and look, everyone wants their, their Christmas presents, right? Um, so... Are you optimistic? Do you think this thing is going to work out? I mean, what is the plan here? Well, uh, that's an excellent question, Don. And, and we are working, uh, like I said, today we're kicking off again our, our negotiations, our discussions uh, with the carriers, and we will see where it goes. It's uh, I know the White House is watching, and, and I know everybody's paying attention. So I'm sure it's going to pick up steam, especially as we move into next week. Yeah. Well, Santa needs help. You know, he can't get everything on that sleigh. He needs a little bit of help from... I hope my kids guys. aren't watching. Yeah. It's all on no, the Santa sleigh. Needs help. And it's all led by Rudolph. Yeah, yeah, the Israel yeah, yeah. workers want their, their time, their paid time. They don't want to But take someone has to get the to toys to, to Santa. You're right. You, you see what I'm, I'm glad saying. you said dignity. I know we got to go, but that, that is so important. Yeah. Dignity and the workers want to be heard. So, Jeremy, thank you. Thank you, Jeremy. Good luck, okay? Let thank us know you. what's up. We'll have you back. Appreciate it. So uh, this this story is fascinating. His wrestling name is Progressive Liberal, and his job is to rile up the Trump-supporting crowd from the ring. But what started out as sort of just a fun gimmick has since gotten out of control. People are even more frustrated. They're even more divided. So now here's this guy in our town saying this stuff that we see on television that we don't agree with. So we can't get those people, we can't get the politicians, let's get him. All right, this morning, Vice President Harris is on her way back to the United States after visiting the Philippines. She's visited an island in the disputed waters off the South China Sea during a visit that is seen as some efforts by the Biden administration to renew ties with Manila as tensions have been rising between the United States and China. Of course, you just saw that meeting with President Biden and the Chinese President Xi Jinping that happened while he was in Bali. Harris, though, spoke with reporters while she was on this trip. She made a few headlines herself when it comes to 2024 and what that run could look like. 
Well, as the president said, he intends to run, and um, if he does, I will be running with him. And I have no doubt about the strength of the work that we have done over these past two years. The White House was asked yesterday if that's something that Biden is going to be discussing over the Thanksgiving break with his family. And they said, yes, that that is a conversation he's expected to have in the coming months. So we'll see. All right. This also just in a major upset at the World Cup, Saudi Arabia knocking off one of the pre-tournament favorites, Argentina. Lionel Messi's Argentina team dominated the first half. The star striker opened the scoring, but Saudi Arabia scored twice early in the second half and pulled off that shocker. But this whole World Cup has really been overshadowed by Qatar's human rights abuses and its refusal to allow any public display of even support or allyship for the LGBTQ community, prompting this comment just now from the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken. One of the most powerful things about football, about soccer, is its potential to bring the world together. It's always concerning from my perspective when we see any restrictions on freedom of expression. Uh, it's especially so when the expression is for diversity and for inclusion. Um, and in my judgment, at least, no one on a football pitch should be forced to choose between supporting these values and playing for their team. And back here in the United States, in just a few hours, an appeals court will hear arguments in the Justice Department's challenge to the appointment of a third party, a special master, to review records seized from Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate. Straight to CNN's Paula Reed now with the very latest. Good morning. Uh, what is going on here? Where are we in this process, Paula? Well, Don, this is the first test for the newly appointed special counsel, Jack Smith. This is the first court hearing since his appointment. And while he will not be here in person, he has personally approved all of the arguments that his prosecutors will make in court today as they try to remove a significant obstacle to their investigation. And that is the requirement that a third party review all of the materials that were seized from former President Trump's Mar-a-Lago home back in August. Now, the former president requested this review because he argued that privileged materials may have been caught up in that search. And a lower court granted that request. A so-called special master was appointed to go through about 22,000 documents. And the need for speed is really what's at stake here. As we know, the former president, he has successfully used delay as a litigation tactic for decades, but there are concerns about how far this investigation will go into the 2024 presidential election cycle. You heard the attorney general on Friday when he announced Smith's appointment saying this is not going to slow anything down. I've even spoken with sources close to Smith who say, look, this is not a guy who dawdles. He's someone who moves quickly. And if they can get the special master removed, that will help investigators proceed even more swiftly. How likely it is that they will succeed here? It's possible. One good sign uh, for prosecutors is that the court has already granted them a carve out for classified materials saying, look, they can just go ahead and start investigating those. And now a different panel of judges will assess whether they just want to get rid of the special master altogether. But, Don, we're not going to get a decision today. But this is a big test for the man who has just inherited two of the most high-profile and sensitive investigations in the country. Yeah, with some enormous consequences for this investigation. Paula Reed, thank you very much. I appreciate that. 
All right, wait until you watch this next story. A liberal wrestler from Appalachia, and I say liberal because that's literally the wrestling name he used, who used to enjoy the crowds taunting him, is now living in a very different and dangerous reality. In this divisive political climate, he says the taunts are getting too real and the sport is too dangerous for him. Ellie Reef has this fascinating reporting. <laughs> This is politics in America right now. Baby Channeled through a pro wrestling ring. I just criticize their way of life and tell them how they need to follow a real man like myself or my hero, Joseph R. Biden. The progressive liberal Dan Richards is a wrestler who fans in Appalachia love to hate. When I grab a hold of him and I look in the crowd and say, hit him in the mouth, and they all come to their feet, yes, I hit him in the mouth. And they go, he did that for us. Dan and his mentor, Bo James, came up with the gimmick when Trump was first running for president. I said, my God, if we had a guy that was the anti-Trump and we could send him to the ring in these towns, how much heat would we get? They want to see you get your ass kicked. That's the heat you want. It's the greatest feeling in the world. It's a high. Now that politics has gotten so intense, it's getting too real for Dan. The response to me and people who think like me are more violent. Dan really is liberal. I first interviewed him in 2017, which now, bizarrely, feels like a more innocent time. So in 2017, you wore like an all-over print Hillary shirt. It was very Hillary-focused. Like, what pieces of current events do you pull from to sort of trigger people? Well, I've got a Biden collage shirt and one of Kamala Harris. The Biden one triggers more people than anything because I don't think half these people even know who Kamala Harris is. Dan says he gets more heat now than when Trump was in office. He thinks fans feel like they got their hero taken away. There's so many people that think an election was stolen. I sell realism and emotions it gets an emotion out of people. So whatever the headlines are of that week, that's what we're going to use. But do you ever talk about the election being stolen? Yeah. If Dan wins by cheating, then his opponent can go to the microphone, like I do, and I say, a lot of these good people here tonight think you stole that just like an election was stole. The building goes nuts. They usually wrestle in Appalachian counties. Some went for Trump by more than 80%. It's a small mountain town. Poor county, poor community, no hope. He represents to them everything that's put them in that position. And do you think it's changed in the last five years, how intense it is? Yeah, it's more dangerous. The moment I realized things had changed, I think, is when I had rocks thrown at me and someone tried to light me on fire and someone pulled a knife on me. So recently? Yeah, I mean, what, that was a month ago. People are even more frustrated, they're even more divided. So now here's this guy in our town saying this stuff that we see on television that we don't agree with. So we can't get those people. We can't get the politicians. Let's get him. They'd advertise Dan would be wrestling bow in Stickleville, Virginia, a community of about 330 people. Fans came ready to boo Dan. We all have our own opinion, but uh, his, especially in this area, is a lot different and you know everybody wants to punch him in the face we love wrestling first of all but to come and show the liberal like hey 
we know what we stand for. Yeah. And, and definitely not the left side. So, do you want to see him get beat up? Yes. <laughs> do you want Trump to run again? Amen. You do? Yes. Yeah? Okay. Corey Smith wrestles as white trash millionaire. He doesn't like Dan's politics, but he's off the Trump train. I don't see how things could get any worse, but with Trump, um, we would find out. You think so? I believe so, yeah. When you stop putting America first, start putting yourself and what you want to do first, I'm jumping, I'm jumping off any train. But you gotta tell me when that moment was. Um, Twitter. If I'm at my job and I'm constantly tweeting, I'm getting fired. I want somebody that leads this country by actions, not by words. The crowd was loud for other matches, but when Dan walked out, it was next level. Then he got out of the ring and riled them up more. A guy looked ready to fight Dan. Some fans fought each other. Bo cut the match short. Backstage, they said the crowd got too hot too fast. We felt it coming. We pushed it too far. It's a different kind of hate now, and it's at a level that I haven't experienced previously. So anyone who doesn't think it's getting more violent and what, on what side it's coming from needs to have a reality check. You have to know how to let it breathe. You have to know how to hear it, feel it, live it. You can be great and do all the athletic moves, all the stuff. If you don't know your audience, it doesn't matter. Ali Reeve joins us now. I always say you have a way of just disarming people so they tell you exactly what they're experiencing and thinking. Why did you want to tell us this story? Oh, well, I had felt politics being much more heated and intense when I covered it, but, you know, maybe at a political rally or something like that. And I was looking for a way that could show this visually, just how intense it was, even for the average person. So I called up Dan and Bo. And what was it like being on the ground there as you're reporting this out and listening to these stories? It's such an interesting perspective. Well, I, I, the wrestlers often have so much knowledge and wisdom about what regular people want to hear and what they're feeling and their frustrations. So I loved that. Um, it was one of the nicest Trump-supporting crowds I've ever been in because the announcers came on and said, these girls are real nice and they love wrestling, so be nice to them. <laughs> yeah, that's not always the reception you get at other, at other Trump events. That is, it is a perspective, though, into a worldview of people that you don't always get from even talking to lawmakers and whatnot. Yeah, they're really there and it's uncensored and it's unpolished and they're just like actually, there's no media professional tweaking every little word they say. It's just very real. How do, how do I say this without... It, that made me sad. Yeah. Because they can't tell the difference in many ways, not I'm generalizing here, between reality and not reality. I mean, this was something that's supposed to be fun, but... And then, you know, they're operating on this whole sort of thing about, you know, people, the Democrats being evil and election denial and the election was stolen and all that. And I think it's I, it's just it just makes me really sad. I just I just want to go and say, hey, guys. None of that, what you're believing is true. And you can't I don't know. I, I don't know what to do with that. I really don't. 
Well, I think it does reflect the sort of dehumanization of your political opponents um, that we're seeing now. Like when I interviewed them five years ago, I interviewed people in the crowd and they were laughing. They would be like, ha, who doesn't love to hate the liberal? But now it's way more serious. Yeah. And we, as we have seen around the country. Dangerous. Dangerous. Yeah. And that's the point. That's why I said I don't know what to do with that, because we're at a point now where people are being because of you know, who they are. Uh, because of what they believe, they're being, they're in danger. And as we see, five people are dead in large part because of not believing in, you know, or, or for vilifying people that they don't agree with. Thank you, Ellie. I appreciate it. Thanks, Thanks. very much. All right, so we are also, just brought up Colorado, yeah. learning new details about the victims. There they are, their faces, their names. We'll tell you more about them. Murdered in that nightclub this weekend in Colorado Springs. And ahead, we're going to be joined by the veteran who took down the gunman. His name is Richard Fierro, and he joined CNN This Morning. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Good Tuesday morning to you. Thank you so much for joining us. It is November 22nd, and welcome to CNN this morning. We have to start with this disturbing story, of course, coming out of Colorado Springs. We now know the names of all five victims killed in that nightclub shooting, and we're learning more about who they were in just a moment here. We're going to hear from the Hero Army veteran who took down the gunman and saved countless lives. Also, Maricopa County, Arizona, has been a hotbed of election denialism. Now, what we've learned about a top election official there forced into hiding on Election Day because of the threats. We will ask Governor-elect of Arizona, Katie Hobbs, about that and about the refusal of her opponent, Carrie Lake, to accept the results. Also this morning, with Republicans set to narrowly take over the House in January, Kevin McCarthy is angling to become House Speaker. We'll see if he ultimately does. But in the meantime, he is renewing his threat to remove a Democratic lawmaker from the House Foreign Affairs Committee. We'll talk about that and more with the current House Majority Leader, Steny Hoyer. As you can see, it is a very busy news day, but we're going to start with this. The alleged gunman who murdered five people at an LGBTQ nightclub in Colorado Springs faces murder and hate crime charges this morning. That's according to court records. He remains hospitalized and he's being held without bail. We're learning a lot more about his victims from the people who knew and loved them. They are Daniel Aston, Raymond Green Vance, Kelly Loving, Ashley Paw, and Derek Rump. All of them had so much to live for. And many of them were so young. Kelly Loving had just turned 40. She was excited about her recent move to Colorado Springs to experience the LGBTQ community. And 28-year-old Daniel Aston had moved to Colorado Springs two years ago. He wanted to be closer to his mom and to his dad. He had been a bar supervisor at Club Q, and he was considered by his peers to be a great boss. Derek Rump was also a bartender at Club Q. Friends say that he found a community of people that he loved. He felt he could shine there. By all accounts, he did. Ashley Paw was a devoted mother. Her daughter, Riley, was her whole world. Ashley's family says she had a huge heart and worked at a Kids Crossing, a nonprofit that finds homes for foster children. And 22-year-old Raymond Green Vance was visiting Club Q for the first time with his longtime girlfriend, her parents, and some of her parents' friends. So the group Vance was dining with included our next guest. It's Richard Fierro, the retired Army veteran, who subdued the suspected <laughs> gunman. Go ahead. Good morning to you. Uh, listen, uh, go ahead. Tell me, what, what do you... 
What'd you say now? Now, for? Uh, well, so I, I'm not retired, I, and I, I I know it sounds weird, but I'm not. I, I got out at 15 years because I was just done. I was broke. I, I couldn't keep up. Okay, um, this 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 kind of stuff is is for certain people, you know. I, I'm not one of those. Um, I'm just a, a regular guy, man. Um, I, I, I respect what you guys do. I, re, I respect how this all goes, um, but. The, the, the thing I just saw, <laughs> listen, I'm in the Army for 15 years, from 99 to, to 14 or 13, whatever it was. Um, I will tell you, I've worked with folks, I still work with folks that do not believe in any of the stuff I believe in, but we have a mission and we get it done. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's in the civilian world, too. And we respect each other. Uh, what do you, I think hey, I've hey, talked Richard, about Hey, Alex Richard, uh, listen, yeah. let's, I want to rein it in here so that we can, so people can understand. Yeah. And Because uh, I know the last couple of days, I can only imagine how emotional it's been for you. Have you gotten any sleep? Probably yeah. not, right? Not a lot. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, so, so um, look, you say you're a regular guy. People are saying that you're a hero. I know that you don't believe that. It's hard to believe. Why? I, I mean, there's there's five families that, that don't have their kids. Um, Raymond Raymond was a, a kid. He's been in my house for the last six years. Um, he's met all my family. He's met my wife's family. He's gone with us on trips. He was part of our family. Um, and and I, I can't speak to Raymond because that's his mother's position. I'm, I'm not trying to take that at all. But we should I explain Raymond was your man. daughter's friend, right? And who who died? Yeah, yeah. and you, you go on. Say again. Yeah, he, he was her boyfriend, and, and he was a part of our life um, mm-hmm. since she was in high school. Uh, mm-hmm. I went to his football games. Yeah, uh, we sat in the, the audience with his with his mom. You know, I watched him play. Uh, I, I loved it because I was a lineman too. He was, and, and that's kind of what we did. You know, so we 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 joked joked with each other again i'm i'm not his girlfriend's dad it's not the relationship everybody wants to be you know hey, hey this is going to work out real well um i'm a protective guy um but but raymond was a very respectful boy he was a good young man i'm sorry he was a young man yeah. um and and i think he did uh I, i'll be honest i hope to god that he was and i i believe it i, I believe he was doing his best to save people himself Okay. So listen, um, you were there with Raymond and your daughter, you're, and you were there to, I want to explain to people how this went down. You were there with yeah. um, your family, your wife, Raymond, yeah. your daughter, uh, Raymond's a boyfriend. And you went to see a friend of your daughter's who was performing in this drag show, right? Correct? Yeah, a little white. Yeah. Yep. And, okay. And so then this all happens, this all breaks out, and you lose Raymond, uh, the boyfriend. So it, listen, it was, it's interesting that you were there because people think it's a gay club. It's just going to be gay people. And I thought it was really important that you, um, as an ally, were there with your entire family, just there to have a good time. And you became a witness, a firsthand witness to the hate that members of the LGBTQ community face. Am I wrong with that? No, yeah, I mean, I, I would... I would... I would agree with that. And, and I, and I think you're right there. Um, I, I don't know what this guy's intention was. I, I, I honestly, I don't care. He was trying to hurt us, all of us. Um, and at that point in that room, we were all together. Um, there's no differences between any of us. Uh, I, I, we've always supported, uh, our community, whether it's LGBT, Asian, black, whatever. 
I, I, in the army, I was exposed to all that, you know, and, and I had a chance to meet people that were not like me. I'd never had collard greens till I got in the army. I didn't know what grits were. I mean, it changes who you are because that diversity brings it forward. And, and that's my wife's uh, whole thing with what she was doing with the brewery. And, and that's why we support these these different places within our community. Mm-hmm. You're saying you say that you don't know um, what the motive was. He is being charged, obviously, with five counts of murder and then the five counts of hate crime uh, charges as well. So investigators do believe that it was motiv- motivated by hate. What do you say to folks who said, look, and you had never had collard greens or whatever. You didn't experience a, listen, great diversity until you went into the armed forces. What do you say to people who use LGBTQ people, gay people, trans people as pawns politically or just to hate them? I, I, I'll, I'll be honest. Nobody needs to be used as anything. Um, I, I, look, I, I don't claim to be one side or the other. I, I'm a big fan of the Colin Powells and the, and the Barack Obamas and the J- John McCain's. These guys had values. Um, and to me, it's all about values and, and, and staying family-oriented. Uh, nothing to me um, from that guy said family. And 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 that's all that mattered. And this, all those the people in that room were so diverse, so complete. There was there was straight people in there. There's there's everything in there. Mm-hmm. They just they, everybody just came out to have a good time. Matter of fact, when I was we were talking last night, me and my daughter and my wife, are, we've been upset. And and we were talking. We said, you know, that was the greatest night we were having with Raymond and Chip and Joanne. We the six of us were having the greatest time just enjoying the show. And then the girls got a chance to dance after Raymond was dancing with my daughter and, and it was awesome. And the young man that was dancing near my daughter is the one that pulled her out of there when the shooting started. I, I was sitting down. I mean, I, I, I'm telling you, everybody in there has a story. I, I'm not, I don't think mine's any more special. I, I understand that it comes off that way. It's different, but I, I'm, I just want people to be, good to each other, man. And, and, and that's, that's it. You know, I've, I've seen really bad stuff, uh, you know, deployed and, and here, I don't like it. I, well, I want let me talk to, to you about that, if you will. And I don't mean to cut you off here, but <laughs> let, let me t- talk to you about that because you were there and you helped to subdue the gunman. And there were others who helped you um, as well. One of them was a performer. Can you, t- so what happened that your training kicked in? What sparked this all off? If you can just if you don't mind going through it again. Yeah. Um, okay. So I, I felt, I, I went to the ground like everybody did. Um, and then I, when I rolled to get up, cause I knew I had to do something, I rolled to get up and I actually fell backwards into the, like a, there's like a seating area, uh, bench seating. And I fell into that. And as I fell into it, I hit my back and I looked up and I just saw that the flag fest um, in the, like a window door. And I saw people behind that. And this guy was standing in front of it. I don't know if he was shooting, getting ready. Sh- I have no idea. I went black, not black at that point, but I went, hey, I got to stop this guy. So I ran across the room and I, and I pulled him down. A young man who was, I believe was, was trying to hide himself there in that corner jumped up with me. I don't know if he helped me pull me down. It was, I think it was the Thomas, the Thomas kid. I, I, can't, I can't remember all these names. Uh, but it, the kid jumped up with me. We pulled him down. Um, and I, I, his rifle came to the left side of or he fell to his left side, and when I put him down, his rifle was in front of him. The young man that tried to help me was in front of him with his feet towards his head. And uh, I started yelling, hey, get his AR, and I was going for the pistol. 
So the guy started, the, the young man, Thomas, pulled the AR, pushed the AR away. We were both trying to keep all the weapons away from him. The kid, the guy was reaching for weapons and whatever he could reach for. He was still fighting. Um, and then I just started hitting him to, to make him stop fighting. I, I'm not letting you get back up. Mm-hmm. Um, and Thomas, I told him, hey, man, kick, 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 kick this guy, kick this guy. And it's not natural for people to do that to people. You know, that kid's got to live with that for the rest of his life. He was kicking somebody in the top of his head. That's not. But we had to do it. Right. And someone um, else came over and, and started kicking. Came, yeah, so he was getting tired or he was hurt. I don't know. And he slowed down. I said, don't slow down. And as I was yelling, hey, call 911, get somebody, get some help. And then this, this one of somebody, and it may not have been a performer, but somebody in high heels uh, um, walked by or was running by. And I said, help this guy, kick this guy. He's, he's slowing down. He was tired. Mm. It felt like a year, you know? I mean, we didn't know how long we were going to be doing this. And I just kept swinging as best I could. Um, I, I don't know. I, yeah. I don't know if I did anything. I don't know if they did anything, but we stopped him. Yeah. That's all we could do. Well, Richard, um, listen. That, that's all that matters. There are a lot of people who are grateful because, uh, you know, sadly, five people are dead. Many more were injured, but it could have been worse. And there are people who do think that you're a hero. One of them is the co-owner of Club Q, Nick Gerska, and he joins us now. Nick, I know that you've been wanting to meet Richard. And here's your chance. Hello to you. What do you have to say to him? Richard, thank you. You, you were a big part of um, saving many more lives and, and stopping this from being worse than it already was. Um, we applaud you. Um, and I, I can't wait to give you a big hug. And I'm sorry for your loss as well. Richard, do you want to respond? Thank, thank, no, thank you. I, I, listen, I, you guys have a great establishment. I, I, there's, I, I run a business too, man. This is hard. We, we just went through COVID. Uh, we're barely making it. Everybody's barely making it. And, and I was in there, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't packed. We were in there, and it, it was like it's a good crowd, but it wasn't, it wasn't packed. And and it was a safe space, you know. And and I was like, okay, cool. There's no problems here, no issues. You know, everything's going good. Um, and and you know, I. I I, I commend you for doing what you do, man. I, I, we try to do that without the Vida. We, we, our whole thing is diversity is on tap. Um, my wife's vision is to, to, the beer summit that Obama had. You know, she wants people to sit down with a beer and author Vida beer, and it means, you know, hey, there's no judgment. We're going to have a good time together. Um, and and that's, what, that's what her goal is, and I know that's your goal too. Um, and and that's, that's all we can do is try. As business owners, it tends to be very vanilla, We've kind of done something that's not vanilla, if you will, and and we're trying to step out there and make a change, a difference, if you if we can, mm-hmm. and and I think you've done that. I'm trying. I'm I'm just a we're just a four year well, business. We're trying. Richard, let, yeah. Let, what do you want to say, Nick? I I just can't say thank you enough. Um, I I'm just so happy you were there. Um, you're an angel to many people in this community. Yeah. So, Nick, thank listen, you. I want to talk to you. Thank you for what you do. I, I want to talk to, um, to both of you, and especially you, Nick, and, I'm, and my colleagues, I'm sure, have some, some questions here because we've been talking about all this hate um, in America and um, especially when it comes to LGBTQ people. Both of them are allies and have gone to bars with, you know, our gay friends. But, Nick, you want to say something to the, our leaders and the politicians out there who you believe are helping to fuel this? Yeah. 
I, I think that um, words are important. The words you use every day are, are so important. Um, they can cause so much love or hate. And you might think that words are, are so small and insignificant and it's getting your point across, but these politicians making drag queens out to be horrible people, um, these aren't true things, um, and, but it, it, it makes people do things that, that are hate-filled, such as what we saw this week. Say again, I lost the last part of what you said, Nick. Oh, I, I said it, it, it makes people filled with so much hate do things um, like we saw this weekend. Um, and I think that politicians need to understand that this is bigger than them getting votes, um, them making up lies about the LGBT community when they don't understand it um, is, is, is sad. Just so they can get a point across um, they're taking our lives and our safe spaces to push their agenda through. Richard, you're shaking your head. No, I, I agree with him. I, I, listen, I, I, like I said, I, I don't jump on any side. I jump on like people, you know, I, I love people. And, and, I, and I, I think what they're doing is amazing. I think um, I grew up around so a mix of everything and, and, and being able to, to share and exchange cultures. It's, that's part of being American. Um, I, I, I'm a proud American. I'm, I'm a proud supporter of, of everybody, you know, and, and I think that's kind of where people just need to go back to. Um, I, I, I applaud what they're doing and I applaud um, folks that have the courage to tell their parents, you know, hey, I'm coming out. That's hard, that's harder than anything I think I've ever done. I, I couldn't do it if I, if I had to. It's, it's a challenge. It's, it's huge. But, Don, I watched when you – me and my wife, our favorite night was uh, New Year's Eve. Uh, you and Brooke were having a great time in New Orleans. And we had just gone down the Mississippi uh, uh, Blues Trail. And that moment we were like, you know, that's what it's about. It, it, you guys were just enjoying yourselves with a crowd, having a good time. Nobody was judging anybody, and it was beautiful. Um, much like the the beer summit with, with that Obama did. It, those are things that for us as as people that sell beer, people that that have people with libations, right, want people to have fun. But at the end of the day, you want to shake hands and love each other. You know, that's that's what it's all about. Nick, do you have concerns about the? I'm going to give you the last word here, the final word, but do you have concerns about um, the division in our country and, and where we're heading? Because you were trying to offer a safe space and it, sadly, someone interrupted that so violently. I, I, I do. I, I am sad and scared about where this nation is going. Um, what's happened to, to us this weekend as a community um, is happening around the nation. Um, these politics are tearing our gay communities apart. Um, you see what's happening in New York with the bricks being thrown at bars. Um, this is this is not this is not good. This is not safe. Um, and our politicians are helping drive this narrative and they can also help stop it. Yeah. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Thank Richard. You. you guys are very brave. I, I, I could talk a lot longer with you, but listen, um, we'll move on because we're going to discuss this more. Thank you so much. That's all I can say because I'm going to verge of tears right now. I appreciate it. I'm sorry, Eric, what did you say? Oh, couldn't, couldn't you? Okay. We're going to go to break and we'll discuss right after this. We'll be right back. 
More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Welcome back to CNN This Morning. Disturbing news that we have learned, and that is that the one of the top election officials in Arizona's largest county was taken to an undisclosed location on Election Day for his own safety. The Maricopa County Board of Supervisors Chairman Bill Gates spent election night at a secure location under police protection because of a specific threat made to him online. He is still receiving increased security. Gates, a face you've seen a lot on this network, is a Republican who first gained notoriety for pushing back against Trump's election lies centered on Arizona in 2020. He has continued to refute election lies spread by some of his fellow Republicans, including the losing gubernatorial candidate in Arizona, Carrie Lake. Joining us now is Arizona Secretary of State and Governor-elect Katie Hobbs. Governor, congratulations and good morning. Thank you. Good morning to you as well. Your reaction to this news that we just learned about Republican you know, election official in your state, Bill Gates. Yeah, I mean, I think Arizonans and Americans sent a strong message to these election deniers that we're ready to move on. But unfortunately, they are still ginning up these uh, attacks on uh, those responsible for our elections uh, based on their false allegations uh, and um, their their. Uh, basically just being a sore loser. And um, we cannot tolerate it. This has to end. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think we we survived a lot in this last election. We, um, we helped save democracy, but uh, it's not over. And we have to continue to be vigilant and hold these folks accountable for their dangerous political record, re- rhetoric that is causing this kind of threat. You know, you are about to govern the state of Arizona. And this is a, this was a hard fought campaign Uh, You won, but the difference was just over 17,000 votes. So that means you're going to represent a lot of folks who wanted Carrie Lake to be the governor. A lot of Republicans who disagree with you on a lot of views um, on abortion, which I know is the number one thing you're going to take on as governor. Um, You're going to oversee a state with about 40,000 public employees, a budget around $60 billion annually. Can you talk to us about how you are going to do that in a way where the people who didn't vote for you actually feel represented by you? Certainly. I mean, I ran this campaign uh, talking to Arizonans. I wasn't focused on if they were Democrats or Republicans. And the issues I talked to them about are Arizona issues, uh, fixing our water crisis, uh, funding our neglected public schools, protecting reproductive rights, uh, affordability. Those are all things that Arizonans care about and are struggling with right now. And uh, I have promised that I'm going to be a governor for all Arizonans, whether you supported me in this election or not. Uh, I'm ready to get to work to tackle these tough issues. And that means bringing people together from all across uh, the state, um, from all political parties to to help tackle them. I had a strong coalition of Republicans supporting me in this race because they chose sanity or chaos. And I'm going to continue to make sure that our administration is inclusive of all those viewpoints, uh, because these are not Democrat or Republican issues. They're Arizona issues. And one of the big Arizona issues, Governor-elect, is the border and immigration. And so when it comes to that, what's your intent on that? Are, are you going to how different is your border policy going to look from your predecessor, from Doug Ducey's? Are you going to reverse anything that he did on that front? 
Well, look, as a border state, Arizona has certainly borne the brunt of decades of inaction from both parties in Washington. We need real action on immigration reform. We need real border security. Uh, but in the meantime, I, I, you know, a lot of things that, that Governor Ducey has done, putting migrants on buses to Washington, D.C., uh, placing shipping containers at the border, are really political stunts at the expense of taxpayer dollars, uh, where we could really be using those dollars where they're meaningful, providing meaningful relief and border communities that are feeling the effects of, of, of um, you know, crime at the border. And I, I have a border plan that's been endorsed by two border sheriffs. Um, it's one of the things at the top of my agenda to talk to the president about uh, in terms of bringing real security to our state and the border. And on that front, uh, about speaking to the president, do you want him to visit the border? Do you think his administration is doing enough when it comes to the border? I've said this. Uh, I don't think they're doing enough. I would love to have them visit and see firsthand uh, the kind of uh, support and relief that folks uh, in these communities need from the federal government. Governor-elect, do you have a message for your opponent who is, keeps spreading these election denial conspiracies, um, much as you know the former president did? She's doing it locally as he is doing it nationally. That has to. I mean, that will also affect. Um, how you govern and your legislative agenda, I'm sure. Absolutely. I mean, look, I'm not focused on what my my former opponent is doing. I'm focused on uh, all the things we need to do to get ready to to lead on day one of my administration. But this kind of political record, rhetoric, um, these false accusations, they need to stop because many people across the state of Arizona and across the country are being misled by these so-called political leaders and their rhetoric is dangerous and it's leading to threats and violence and it needs to stop. Governor-elect Hobbs, congratulations on your win. Thank you for joining us. We hope you'll come back on the program uh, many more times. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. All right, House Republicans are already discussing the major investigations they plan to launch when they formally take over in January. Now that they have won the House back just by a little bit, we're going to talk to the current House Majority Leader, Democratic Congressman Steny Hoyer, about how Democrats plan to deal with that incoming Republican majority. That's next. Well, we will absolutely defend the Biden administration and his track record. And I expect that we will strongly and vigorously uh, be involved in pushing back against any effort at overreach by the extreme MAGA Republican wing of the House Republican Conference. That's Congressman Hakeem Jeffries vowing to defend the Biden administration against what Democrats see as potential overreach by a Republican-controlled House when it comes to investigating the White House. Jeffries is set to succeed. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is the next leader of the Democratic caucus. Pelosi and other Democratic leaders, Steny Hoyer and Jim Clyburn, have announced they will step down from leadership to pave the way for a new generation. Hoyer, the number two Democrat in the House, has been in Congress for more than 41 years. He has served in a leadership role since 1986. He and Pelosi actually got their starts as interns together on Capitol Hill. So joining us now is House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer. And thank you so much for being here with us this morning. And, you know, this was a huge announcement that came last week. Obviously, yours that followed was also significant. Tell us what led you to decide that you were going to step down from leadership and if whether or not you plan to serve out your full term. Well, I, I plan to uh, serve my full term. We'll, we'll see on that. I haven't made a definite uh, judgment on that. But let me say my view was 
had we taken the majority, I would have run for majority leader, and I think, frankly, the speaker would probably have run. Uh, but we didn't, and so we're now in the minority. In the minority, I've been the minority whip 12 years, uh, and in the minority, you're essentially responding uh, to the majority. And I thought it was an excellent time. I think uh, Senator Clyburn and I both felt it was time to step down. We've been there for a long time and give these younger leaders when we have extraordinary in, in Mr. Jeffries and Ms. Clark, Mr. Aguilar and, uh, and others. We have extraordinary new leaders coming in. But this two years in the minority will give them the experience that they need so that when we take over the House again in 224 and I, in, in 24, and I believe we will, they will be uh, they'll have two years of experience under their belt as leaders. And I think that will make us a, a more effective uh, party in the, in the House of Representatives. So that's why I, I took the action I did. OK, we'll keep us updated on whether or not you do plan to serve out your full term. Thank you for weighing in on that. And, you know, a big part of this, as you just mentioned, you talked about new leadership. And so when you talk about what that new leadership looks like, one of the unavoidable questions on Capitol Hill, as you well know, is when it comes to the age of leadership. And this is something that was a big focus last week. Obviously, you're 83. Nancy Pelosi, she's 82. Clyburn is 82 as well. President Biden himself is 80. And so I wonder if that new leadership is something you think is a mindset that also applies when it comes to the president weighing a White House decision. You know, I love the ad. Age is just a number. Uh, <laughs> I think uh, I, I campaigned in uh, some uh, uh, 26 states and about 60 districts. Uh, and uh, I think I was as vigorous as I have been at any point in time in my uh, service as leader. So that I think uh, God has been very good to me and I have the mental and physical capacity to continue and would have run for majority leader. But uh, I think all of us felt that this was a time for transition because I'm 83, they're 82, uh, and clearly we're not gonna serve forever. Uh, and this was a good time, I think, to, to transist uh, to new, le new leadership, particularly in the House of Representatives. And, and I think it was a good decision uh, that we made. Uh, both Jim Clyburn and I and uh, the Speaker are going to continue to, to serve in the Congress and serve our districts and act on behalf of our constituents. Uh, but it was a good time to uh, say to new leaders, uh, get, get experience uh, and uh, um, we'll move on. So I think that's what we did. I think it was a good, good step, as I said. So is that a consideration you think the White House should also keep in mind as Biden says he's going to be deciding over the over the holidays? Look, I think uh, Joe Biden has been very vigorous in this campaign. I think he's been very vigorous as the leader of our nation. Uh, he's been very successful legislatively. We passed four, um, many extraordinary bills, but four extraordinary bills that were for the people and for the economy. They were focused on the economy, making sure people didn't fall through the floorboards, uh, making sure that we have an infrastructure that supports our competitiveness uh, and uh, in the 21st century, passed a science and uh, bill uh, which dealt with the chip shortage that we had. And then uh, we passed the Inflation Reduction Act. Those four bills are historic bills and are going to be very responsible for America making it in America. Not only manufacturing things, <clears throat> including zeros and ones in, in, in technical mm -hmm. terms, 
uh, but also in making sure that people can have success in their own lives and security in their own lives. And, and that's what we were committed to. That's what we've done. So uh, Joe Biden has had an extraordinarily successful uh, first two years. And so I think uh, he, he's expressed his interest and in, in, in intent to run again. And I think that uh, uh, if he does, I will support him uh, okay. because I think he's been a very okay. successful leader. I want to ask you this. Um, good morning to you, by the way. We really appreciate you, you joining us. Um, morning, John. Uh, I, I have got to say, you know, we were, we were talking about you coming on and discussing uh, amongst ourselves and, and, and your decision not to run for leadership. I said, I wonder how much that had to do with um, the diversity and age and, and uh, having a bench in the Democratic Party. Was that a lesson that you learned over the last couple of years? Or was this something that happened after the midterms where you realized when you saw the young people getting out uh, and voting and, and so forth that, hey, we, you know, we need to make a change. We need some youth. We need some diversity in order to move forward as a party and as a country. Don, I, I think that in any organization, you need new blood. You need to bring new blood in and you need to promote that new blood. Now, very frankly, the three leaders that we're talking about are leaders right now. Uh, in, in terms of uh, Jeffries is chairman of the caucus, uh, Clark is assistant to the leader, and Aguilar is the vice chair of the caucus. So we've been bringing new leaders in, but yes, Don, in answer to your question, I think this was the time, while we're in the minority, uh, to promote those leaders into uh, positions of greater responsibility. And I think that experience over the next two years is going to make them uh, better leaders stronger leaders, more effective leaders, when we take back the majority, which I think we're going to do. I think the American people essentially rejected extremism. They uh, rejected hate. Uh, they rejected a negative uh, uh, agenda that the Republicans set forth. And very frankly, I think uh, Mr. McCarthy is going to have a very tough time dealing with a caucus, a conference, as they call their group, uh, that is very negative in its perspective and wants to look back, mm -hmm. not forward. It doesn't want to look for the people. It wants to look for its politics. And I think that's going to really hurt them. And I frankly think when you look at uh, John Boehner and Paul Ryan, two previous speakers, they got out. They got out early because they could not deal mm -hmm. with their right-wing extremists. And I think McCarthy's going to find the same problem unless he starts to look forward and, and do positive uh, agenda rather than a negative agenda. Majority Leader, it's Poppy. Thanks for, for being with us this morning. Look, the Washington Post editorial board called you a, quote, model leader in Congress, and they write, and they note, I think this is important to remind people of, some of his biggest legislative accomplishments were signed into law by Republican presidents. Caitlin reminded me this morning, one of the big ones more than 30 years ago was the Americans with Disability Act. You got that. You were the lead sponsor in the House. You got it signed by President George H.W. Bush. And I'm looking at the vote, 91 to 6 in the Senate for that. So that means a whole lot of Republicans got behind it. You talk about looking forward. And overwhelming, yeah. yeah. Overwhelming in the House as well. Yes. Yeah, yes, exactly. And so that's sort of the crux of my question. Are we past that time? Or can this new Congress go back to a time when things that actually help millions of Americans can get done in that way? Well, of course, we got stuff done in this Congress in a very partisan way. Uh, there were no Republicans voted for the rescue plan, no Republicans voted for the inf inf 
Inflation Reduction Plan and just a few Republicans on infrastructure and the CHIPS bill. Uh, we got those done in a very, very closely divided. Uh, the answer is, let us hope it can be done, uh, not for Democrats or for Republicans, but for our country, for the people. Uh, let us hope that the uh, Republicans make a determination that having a positive agenda rather than a solely negative uh, extremist agenda uh, is in their political best interest. That's what democracy is about. Uh, representatives trying to represent their people and their uh, vision and their desires. Uh, and I hope that will happen. And we ought not to be so pessimistic that we say, uh, bipartisanship is no longer possible. That will be uh, not good for our country, not good for our people. So I'm, I'm optimistic. Uh, I'm, I'm prepared to work uh, with uh, Mr. McCarthy, Mr. Scalise, uh, and others. Uh, but it will depend upon, as I said in another interview, it takes two to tango. Uh, <laughs> and if they decide all they want to do is a negative uh, attack on uh, President Biden, uh, who's the only president we're going to have over the next two years, uh, and... and uh, working with him for the country, not for him or Democrats, but for the country and for the people, uh, hopefully is the path they will follow. Congressman, we're going to let you go. We're grateful for your time this morning. I do want to just highlight some some tweets from Democratic Senator Chris Murphy, who he, you, you're known on Capitol Hill for your legislative acumen. You're this beloved giant on Capitol Hill. But also he said that one of the things that he remembers the most is at the 2008 congressional baseball game is as a big of a deal that is in Washington. It was Chris Murphy's first game and he blew it. He said he, he lost and he felt like this newcomer and he was so upset. And he said, you broke through the crowd to come over and check on Aww. him. And you said, don't worry about it. There's plenty more games. And he said, it says everything about Hoyer. He cares about people even when nobody is watching. Well, I think those are very kind comments of Chris. And I knew how badly you felt. And I just went over to say, hey, there's going to be another game and uh, another day, uh, so put it behind you, which is what coaches tell, of course, players, <laughs> that, uh, you know, okay, you, you messed up, but forget about it. Uh, it's, it's, golf is that way. Yeah. Uh, you have a bad hole, you need to forget that hole and go on to the next one and uh, hopefully par that one. No, life is that way, right? Life is that way. Life <laughs> is life, that way. Thank you very much. Congressman Coach Hoyer, you. thank you so much, Hoyer. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. All right, Thanks speaking of sports, bye -bye. thank you. We have a major upset that just happened at the World Cup. What? Saudi Arabia pulled off a shocker against Lionel Messi's Argentina team. Plus this. Fat Joe. Look, I mean, I can call him Skinny, Skinny Joe. Joe. He joins us live. He's going to talk about and Mike. culture, Mike. race in America, <laughs> and his fame. journey from poverty. You don't want to miss this. The book is fantastic, by the way. Nothing can stop me. I'm all the way up. I can't stop looking at the video wall. I want to watch it. Nothing did stop him, though, from the streets of the Bronx all the way up to the hip-hop big leagues. Our next guest is opening up about trials and tribulation that paved it and started. Oh, so look, he's got a new book. It's called Fat Joe, The Book of Joe, book A Book of Jose. Jose. And he, look, he's always 
It's extremely open about life and about everything. I love this man. I love you, Joe. Thank, Thank you. you. I love you too, Don. Thank you we for coming. We all do it this day, early in the so morning much. with you guys. So look, this I want is a my book. best fabrics for <laughs> you, Don. I'm going to hold this up. I want you guys to go and buy this book. I'm Thank telling you. you, buy it, buy it, buy it, buy it. All right? We're going to wow. get to this in a moment. But here's what I want you because you talk about these issues. You know what's happening in Colorado Springs. Right. You're a huge supporter of, you're, you're an LGBTQ that's ally. Right. What do you think of this crap that's it's going on? terrible what's going on. Uh, I thought of you too, that's the weirdest thing. When I saw this, I said, mm. man, it's gotta hit. You know, something happens in Puerto Rico or whatever, you think Fat Joe, you know, something happens. I said, man, this is, this is scary that we live in a world like this for no reason though. Like mm -hmm. there is just, it was no reason. And then the brave um, guys that jumped on him mm -hmm. and took a machine gun off this guy. I mean, they were so brave. Their story is so impactful. Last night, it was hard. They, they were on the show. Mm -hmm. And it, it was just so hard to watch the guy break down so much mm -hmm. on TV. It's just sad. Bro. You've been very spoken about hate and um, about ignorance, about what, so look, you don't know what you don't know. Mm -hmm. You talked about, we've been talking about what happened um, with Kanye, what happened with Kyrie. You said you had an interaction with Kanye. He came to you and he asked you for advice. And what did you say? Well, I bumped into him. Uh, I love him. He's a good friend. I tell him you can't hurt people. Uh, if you have issues with anybody, you can't just blame everybody. And so uh, look to God, because for me, God is the, the answer. So I, I was heavy on God with him. I said, you... You, 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 Jesus walks, man. Go to God. Get around the people. Surround yourself around beautiful people that love God and lead you the right way. Mm -hmm. uh, on Kanye, tying into the bigger mental health crisis in America, you write about this really poignantly and personally and impactfully mm -hmm. in the book. Um, and you talk about being bullied in school so badly and then that turning you into what you describe as the worst bully in the world mm -hmm. and driving you to a point where for the first time you thought about taking your own life. You're mm -hmm. a father of three, right? Talk to all of us about how we need to do better addressing mental health in You said country. emotionally I was a ticking time bomb. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I was because it was so much around me. You know, I was a great kid. You know, this this book is in the face of a tough kid. You might look at it and think it's tough. It was a kid who was getting bullied every day by 20 guys. I don't have a Christmas picture, a Thanksgiving picture without a black eye or a bloody lip. And so, but I kept going to school. And so I never gave up. But uh, at one point, I had a best friend and the bullies came up to me and they told my best friend, would, my mother would feed this kid every day at lunch. And they told him his name was Leonard. They said, you got to beat him up with us or we're going to beat you up too. And my best friend beat me up with them. Mm. And that moment changed my life. It was so traumatizing. And that's what turned me into the wrong path in life. But what are, I mean, your kids are a little bit older than mine now, but mm -hmm. what, what do we need to do better so that doesn't happen to more kids as what you went through? Fortunately, I think, the bullying aspect is always going to happen. And this, this is, this is an a, a insecurity problem. Mm. These people, most of the people that bully people got bullied or they're not really that tough. And so they pick on guys that are less to get their reputations built up and stuff like that. Uh, I tell them to fight, tell your mother, tell your father what's going on. Um, you know, we had an incident where uh, a family friend 
uh, her kids were getting bullied right here in Jersey. And I tell her, you stay on them. You stay on them. Mm -hmm. You go to that school. You stay on them. And you, you, you know, you talk to the community because it, she's a very beloved person in the community. You got to talk to the parents to let them know your kids mm -hmm. are bullying my kids and they don't deserve that. Mm -hmm. You call yourself the Forrest Gump of hip hop. That's right. I'm <laughs> from Alabama, Alabama so you know up. I love that. <laughs> Tell me why. Because I, I've, I'm, I'm always seem to be everywhere. So you know, anytime something happens in hip hop music, I was there when they brought out Eminem for the first time. The Outsiders. I was there when Big Daddy Kane brought out Jay Z for the first time. I was there when. Uh, rest in peace, Bismarck. He brought out Big Daddy. I'm so way. I'm always like Forrest Gump. You name it, I'm there. And um, and so, it's it's so beautiful for a kid from the Bronx to be invited to the White House. I was at the White House this year, and uh, shout out the power to the patients. They brought me over there, bringing transparency. But it's just an honor to uh, spread the message of just going through tough times, darkest times and keeping a smile on your face. That's what this book is about. You might not think you could relate, but you could relate in every way, shape, or form, you know? When I was 19, my son was born autistic. His moms wanted to give him up for adoption. And me, my mother, and my father, we raised our son. And so, you know, there's so many forms of adversity that you could be going through depression. I went two years depression. I was sitting in the bathtub with no water running, just staring at the ceiling. Outside, it could be the sunniest day. It looked so dark. But I went and got therapy. And believe it or not, I was the only guy getting therapy. That's important. You need to talk. You know, it was nothing but women men and me. Men don't want to do it. Right. Men don't, don't want to do it. People of color don't. I know black folks don't want to do it. Yes. For the, I'm generalizing here. But they have to. You've got to. You have to work on yourself, man, and make yourself better and get you, gotta, you out you of that. You got to go talk to your pastor. You know what I'm saying? That yeah. Kind of I mean, you no, you therapist. need to get therapy. You know, work on yourself. You know, it took me two years, and I like to think I'm intelligent, but uh, the mind is so powerful. It's like a Rubik's Cube that you can't figure out. You're just trying to figure it out. Hey, Joe, we got we to gotta go. I, we got to go, but I got to Do you ever just sit back and, and think about, oh, oh, man, look at this guy from the Bronx and look at where I am now? Later on in the Bronx, we're giving out six 18-wheelers of food to the people. In the Bronx, today. Harlem today, like about Washington himself. Heights. You know, we, we always out there, you know, we own businesses up in YC sneaker stores in our communities, yep. the Bronx, Harlem, Washington Heights. We have a classroom in there where we mentor the kids after school, uh, give them computers. I mean, we, uh, we do whatever we can for the community. That's we awesome. got to go, Joe. But I got to say, get this book, the, the Book of Jose by Fat Joe. And Joe, you said you signed it. To my brother, Don, thanks for all the love. Fat Joe, thank you for all the love. I love thank you. I appreciate it. You know that. We hope you have thank a great Thank you so Thanksgiving. much, guys. Thank you. thank you. We got a great story to talk about when we come right back. We'll yeah. be right back, everybody. She just became the first female student athlete ever to be named an NCAA Division I varsity baseball player. We'll talk about that. That's next. It is our morning moment featuring a freshman baseball player at Brown University. Her name is Olivia Pichardo, and she just made history as the first female student athlete ever to be named to an NCAA Division I varsity baseball roster. Olivia has been playing baseball since she was five. Now she's 18 and a trailblazer that fits like a glove watch. I think that it's really cool to have 
that we're having more and more female baseball players at the collegiate level. It's really paving the way for um, other girls in the next generation to um, you know, also have these goals um, that they want to achieve and you know, like dream big. Now, as you would say, girl power. We hope that made your morning and made ours. <laughs> so did Fat Joe. Absolutely. Skinny we'll Joe see now. you here tomorrow. Newsroom is now. That's it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at CNN.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.